flamingos in a fruit fight. Every color of day. Whirling around at night. I'm playing this music. So the young girl will come out to meet the monster tonight. Tropical hot dog night Like two flamingos in a fruit fight I don't want to know about wrong or right I don't want to know I'm anywhere tonight Tropical hot dog night the neighborhood. Welcome, everybody, on this Saturday morning, this fine Saturday morning here in northern Colorado. I'm Dave Lefkowitz, and you are listening to Dave's Gone By, which is, oh God, I still don't really know how to describe the show. It's a mix of talk radio, humor, music, special guests, and yes, we do have one today. It's our first, first special guest in a long, long time. So do not Go away. We're listening to uh, Captain Beefheart and the Magic Band, of course, Tropical Hot Dog Night. And from night, we go to, well, the most natural thing, the moon. We have a moon in the studio that we'll be talking to for, uh, for quite a while. Hopefully, you won't be mooning us. <laughs> it's Saturday morning. That's the best I can do, humor-wise. And we're going to be playing our Saturday segue of moon songs in honor of our guest, Gil Moon, from KFKA AM here in Greeley, Colorado. Be talking to him in a little bit. He's got two shows on that station, one about gerontology and old folks and what we do with them and what they do with themselves. <laughs> oh, God. I'm just saying all the wrong things this morning already. And also, he's got a very, very popular program on KFKA called Golden Years Radio, which is four hours of the classics of all-time, old-time radio, and we'll be talking to him about that. And so, in honor of Gil Moon, we're playing Moon Songs here, our Saturday segue on Dave's Gone By. So do stick around. Make sure you check us out on our MySpace page, which will be updated with our playlist throughout the morning, myspace.com forward slash Dave's Gone By. And if you want to email me or make requests, the uh, email is davesgoneby at AOL. 
Com. So here we go off to the Saturday segue. Welcome on this Oktoberfest Saturday morning in Northern Colorado. Me heart she flipped 
you gotta roar like forest fire. You gotta spread your light like blazes all across the sky. They're gonna aim the hoses on you. Show 'em you won't expire. Not till you burn up every passion. Not even when you die. Come on now, you gotta try. If you're feeling contempt, well then you tell it. If you're tired of the silent night, Jesus, well then you yell it. Condemned to wires and hammers, strike every chord that you feel. That broken trees and elephant ivories Time to mat. 
studio, Mr. Moonlight himself, or, well, he's, he's Mr. Moon, and he brings light into our little studio here at the University of Northern Colorado on this program, Dave's Gone By, which airs every Saturday morning from 10 until 1 in the afternoon, Mountain Time. I'm Dave Lefkowitz, happy to be here with you, and we played a bunch of Moon songs. I guess I'll back announce them in a little bit, but uh, let's get to 
my special guest. His name is Gil Moon, and he is a radio broadcaster over just about mm, a third of a mile away at KFKA AM Radio, uh, which is a commercial station in Greeley, Colorado, just a little bit down the road from UNC Radio, which is where we are. And so Gil has two programs on um, on his station, and I'm going to let Gil, first of all, welcome. Welcome to you. Thank you. Great to have you here. This is a retaliation for you being on my show. Wait, let, let, me, let me make sure your mic is up. Let, let's, okay. let's make sure that... Now, now say right. hi. Hi. Sounds good. Um... What I was saying is this is retaliation. You were on my show a few weeks ago, and actually that was a very good opportunity for us to get to know each other, so I appreciate you doing that, and thanks for having me here. You're very welcome. It's great to have you. It was fun. I was on uh, Senior Circle, which is a show that Gil hosts every Sunday morning at 10 on KFKA, and I was there actually sort of, I was the, the hanger on. The reason we were there was my wife is a gerontologist and teaches at UNC, and Senior Circle is about old people and and <laughs> how do you how do you describe it I, everything i say about it makes it sound negative so why don't you <laughs> describe this show old Gil? people you know i didn't feel but you know that was an old person for all those years in fact you know i told you the story about how justin hired me to do the show i was somebody else's guest and he was sitting in his in his office listening he caught me in the in the uh, lobby over there at kfka and he was planning to do something and he said how would you like to create a half hour show for senior citizens that would play Sunday mornings at 7.30. And I said, that's great. I'd love to put something together. And he says, and, oh, I didn't just ask you because you're old. <laughs> right. And you're not. I mean, you, you certainly look. Um, maybe uh, this is radio, so I'll give people a visual. Yeah, I have a face for radio, I'm told. No, you have actually a face that if, if people can imagine a cross between uh, Ernest Hemingway, of course, and maybe a, a sort of older but thinner Orson Welles, uh, you would probably that that would be a pretty good description of Gil. That may be the highest there. compliment I've ever gotten. Thank you, David. I <laughs> appreciate that. Yeah, well, it's true. Actually, you got a great, like, well-trimmed beard. Where do you get your haircut? Let me ask you that. You Fantastic, Sam's. I've been getting it over there. A little gal named Carrie that she's been cutting my hair for twenty-three years. So, 20, she yeah, she knows your head. It's, yeah, it's she like sure does. Perfect. Thank you. Trimming. Well, you know, I do my own, and it's just like a mess. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it looks good. Thank you. For your age group, I think you're, you know, that's very attractive. Well, thank you, sir. You sweet thing. <laughs> <laughs> and I style my armpit hair, too. Really, uh... So, tell us, Senior Circle airs 10 in the morning on Sundays. My wife and I were, you were kind enough to have us on. Yes, and I hope to have show. you back, as a matter of fact. Hey, say when. We're yeah, there. I've got your schedule for October. I don't know what the date is, because I don't have it off the top of my head, but I do have it scheduled for October to come back. Wonderful. We, we'd be thrilled. And, and again, it is about senior citizens and about hospice care and, and, um, Others, uh, what do they call? I, I want to say old folks' homes, uh, assisted living. And well, yes, you know, assisted living and independent living, and uh, so on. One of my largest sponsors, of course, is uh, Columbine Health Systems, and they're one of the biggest in the area. And here in Greeley, we have Greeley Place, which is an independent uh, facility. It's just right over there, across from the senior center, and Fairacres Manor. Right. And Fairacres Manor and Columbine have been with me almost from the very beginning, and. Greeley Place, I've been over there several times because my wife and I do some, some live reenactments of radio programs. The Bickersons, do you remember the Bickersons? I don't remember. Well, I've heard of them. Don Amici and Francis Langford, and it was really good shows. 
And then uh, 50 Plus Marketplace News has been with me from the very beginning, too. And 50 Plus Marketplace News has been probably one of the the most um, generous with their uh, recognition of, of my programs, both Senior Circle and Golden Year Senior. Oh, that, that's the newspaper that people can get. Yes. Get with the diners. And, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah it's everywhere. Time, yeah. yeah, and I think, did you meet Michael Buckley? He was on there with us. I don't think you met him at the time, but he's on there pretty regularly with us. Uh, he's not quite a co-host like Dick Grease is, but, but he's on there fairly often. They come over and they and they've actually I have a, a column that I run in there about old time radio and entertainment and so on. But uh, where, where where I was going with this, not to get off track, yeah, is that yeah. there's a senior audience and I don't know if you're aware of this, but it is the fastest growing segment of our population demographically, and there are more people in the uh, age group of 75 and over than there have been in, in recorded history for the United States. One of the things that uh, KFK recognized right off is that that was a huge listener base. And it kind of does watershed off to some other areas, too. For instance, on Golden Years Theater, the uh, classic radio program from 6 until 10 every Sunday evening yes. on 1310 KFKA, Colorado's first radio station, <laughs> I get calls. And, and I average between, let's just say, 10 and 25 phone calls on any given Sunday night because I leave the, the telephone open so people can talk to me. They don't talk on the air. They talk to me while we're playing the programs. Ah, okay. And uh, I have a, a very large contingent of folks that bring their grandchildren or their children, in some cases, into the room and say, this is what we used to listen to when I was a kid. Because I play everything from early 20s all the way into, actually, I have some shows that go into the 80s, some of the CBS Mystery really? Theater and stuff like that. And most of my shows on Golden Years Theater are requests. So it makes it pretty easy for me to program it, you know. Yeah, and what's interesting is that um, we do not have a continuing tradition of it here, really, of theater going beyond the golden age of, ra uh, of radio plays and mm -hmm. radio theater going beyond the golden age of radio. But other countries do. England. Uh, Third Man, Orson Welles' classic, is still running over there on BBC Sunday nights. The original broadcast, or they're still doing like a series? No, it's it? the original broadcast. Those things he did, I believe that there were something in the city of 190 of them, and I have almost all of them in oh, my wow. collection. Yeah. But what's interesting about it is the third man, the British Film Institute, considers that to be the greatest film ever made, British film ever made. Okay. And the American Film Institute considers Citizen Kane. Well, now here's two places that Orson Welles shows up. And as you know, David, I'm obsessed with Orson Welles. Why, so. When did the obsession with Orson Welles begin with you? I have to be honest with you that my son was probably about 12 or 13 when they had that thing on uh, Turner Classics or on TNT, I guess it was, where they played that interview from 1984 that uh, Orson Welles did in Las Vegas for BBC. And uh, I was so fascinated by not just the presence of the man, which was really imposing, but his memory of detail from the stories and so on. And that was only a year before he died. And uh, I, I think that that's probably where my obsession began. And I started reading everything I could find. I have virtually everything he ever did for radio. In fact, I brought you that thing today. There are three programs that I consider to be his best. You know, he went to Hollywood to make Heart of Darkness. He did not go to make Citizen Kane. So we're talking about what year? Would that have been 19... 1939. Okay. Yeah, he was 24 years old when he went to Hollywood. It was essentially on the, uh, on the heels of the War of the Worlds broadcast in 38 on the 30th of October, which is coming up here. We've got an anniversary coming up. Oh, wow, yeah. yeah. Yeah, at any rate, he went to make Heart of Darkness, and I had little or no knowledge of what Heart of Darkness was. It's the Joseph Conrad classic, and it, uh, in reading it, I would guess I was probably in my late 30s when I read it the first time, and I thought, my goodness, this may possibly be the greatest thing ever written, certainly among the greatest of the 19th century. Mm -hmm. But he went to do that, and he was going to film that from the 
eye perspective from the point of view of Marlowe, one of the key character, the narrator. Uh-huh. And Greg Toland developed a camera for them to do. Now, get this again. Now, 1939, okay. he develops a camera for them that could be carried on the shoulders, a 35-millimeter camera, could be carried on the shoulders of the cameraman that would, through parallax, would give the eye view of the character as this narration was going on. But why didn't that film happen? Well, partially because George Schaefer, the head of RKO, thought it was politically uh, dangerous, and secondly, because Orson Welles couldn't get uh, another $50,000 for additional things that he needed. Now, think about this. At that time, they were making films for two hundred fifty to $300,000. He had a great contract, no question about it. He had complete control, and he even could decide who was going to get to see the rushes every day. But he still had to adhere to the budget and still was under the thumb of the people in New York, who the money people at the bank. And uh, I, I don't want to bore you with the story, but what's interesting about it is that he spent nearly a year writing the script and designing the sets and choosing the costumes. And he was going to use his Mercury Theater people, voices that may be familiar, but faces that were not for films. And he, and he did in Citizen Kane and Magnificent Ambersons. But he had gone to all this trouble. They made a short trailer he and Greg Toland did, yeah. which actually it starts off in a birdcage, and you're getting the eye view of the parrot in the birdcage <laughs> and Orson Welles' face from about the nose down. And he's telling about the story like you've never seen it before. And then it switches to being from his eye perspective, and he's on a stage looking out into a movie theater, and in every seat is a camera. Huh. Now that's 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 fairly innovative even for 1939. I don't understand why the movie would have been a political hot potato, though. Well, it still is. There's a number of schools in this country that won't allow that to be taught. It does have some references to uh, to a race of people that uh, is not very flattering. Oh, okay. Uh, but yeah. you know, to me, what's interesting about it, in my reading of it, and, and actually um, in the interpretations that I've read, the David Kirkwood book, and so, or the narrative of the book and so on, that are really, really good, it's more about the evil and the and the um, imp, what do you call it imperialism of the Belgians than it is about anything oh, about else. Yeah. yeah, and it's very interesting because you know Leopold held the Belgian Congo in his own name, not in the name of Belgium, until he had literally raped it and there was nothing left. Then he gifted it to the Belgian people. But, you know, it, Joseph Conrad had a way of writing. There's another one called The Secret Sharer, which is an unbelievably oh, I good... That. Vaguely, yeah. Yeah, I have copies of most of those. Actually, I have Orson Welles reading The uh, the Secret Sharer, which is unbelievable. Orson Welles did for a, a Japanese firm a thing called the Orson Welles Library, and I think that was done in about 1961. And there's some readings of Mark Twain in there and a lot of stuff. And it's really amazing to listen to him read other people's work because you know that you know butterscotch voice of his it was so beautiful to hear this but the secret share and he he had a sort of an affinity i think for joseph conrad because he did a lot of great stuff you've seen lord jim i think the film have you not no uh peter o'toole and kurt jurgens well i'll have to get it to you because it's worth watching I didn't mean to bore you here. No, 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 it's fine. It's, I, anyway, I mean, he, yeah. Wells offered to make a second film. Now, he had his contract was for two films, and he was supposed to write, produce, direct, and star in two films for RKO. Okay. He did essentially write, direct, produce, and star in Citizen Kane, although his co-writer was Herman Mankiewicz. And there's some wonderful stories out there about the influence Mankiewicz had on, on Wells in essentially going after William Randolph Hearst. 
I don't know if you're aware of this, but uh, uh, Richard Wells, who was Orson Welles' father, was a good friend of William Randolph Hearst. No, no, I had no idea. Yeah, they'd been friends for many years. Uh, Wells' father was a very accomplished man. He, uh, uh, by the time he was in his mid-30s, had retired with a rather large amount of money for selling a company that he owned. So, What company? What do you do? Well, it was a, a company that developed lights, <clears throat> excuse me, and his biggest coup was to, to get his lights on uh, some of the early horses' carriages and then on into automobiles. Okay, yeah, that's a, that's a good gig. <laughs> yeah, he did real well. He did real yeah. well. His, his mother was a very famous uh, uh, concert pianist, and uh, actually she was the first woman that was elected to public office in Wisconsin. Wow. Yeah, to the board. So, okay, he had something of a silver spoon. Or yeah, to say the least. A gifted genius. He also had an older like brother that. who was a paranoid schizophrenic and was interned from the time he was 19 years old. Ouch. Yeah. Yeah, it was, there's, it's interesting stuff. Interesting well, stuff. The, the one thing, and, and you mentioned this to me last time we talked, but I think people would be surprised by, I mean, he was checked at every turn by Hearst and by that, but mm-hmm. about the budgets. Of Orson Welles' film. Well, yeah, the budgets that he had for the two films that he was making for RKO was $250,000 each. Imagine making Magnificent Ambersons for $250,000. But but the other thing you said is that every film Orson Welles ended up making throughout his career, what about them? Well, there's a, there's a legend out there that he was profligate and that he didn't do, you know, he always went over budget and he went over over schedule and everything else. That's simply not true because statistically you can look it up. He never went over budget on a single film, including including Citizen Kane. Now, how did he avoid going over budget with Citizen Kane is that he started off filming what he said were screen tests because he said, I don't know anything about making films, so I need to do these screen tests. The breakfast scene with he and uh, Ruth Warwick yeah. was actually filmed as a screen test, but was used into the into the motion picture <laughs> itself. So he did cover some of that. But most of that legend comes from Othello, and he produced that and paid for it out of his own pocket. But in order to do that, it took him four years to make the film. So he would film so much of it, yeah. and then he would go off and make some other people's films for them, act in them, and you know whether it would be American or Romanian or, or uh, British or whoever it was, to make the money to come back and film the next pieces of it. Here's an interesting piece about it. Yeah. You know, his uh, they call them pickup shots when they have to do it's essentially second unit kind of stuff sure. where they where they they show you what it looks like the landscape of Paris or whatever it was. A number of his pickup shots were done in Venice and they would film one piece of it with the actors of live action. He'd go back and look at it on his moviola and say, Gee, we gotta find something that looks like that and he may be in Istanbul and he'd say, Well, maybe we can find a place that's close to that and he would film, <laughs> you know, forty five minutes of something that he could intersplice it because he did most of his own cutting. So oh, it was, yeah, well, okay. Well he said and I think it's interesting. You know who his cutter was on uh, on Citizen Kane? Robert Wise. And he directed Sound of Music, or, or yeah, uh, yeah, Sound of Music Story, right? and West Side Story and the first Star Trek. Oh my God! Yeah. So he well, he got an education right there. It's really interesting because you know there there was a much longer version of Magnificent Ambersons, the second film he made, and he had he had literally done all the shooting for it. And if you take a look at Ambersons, the first half of it up to the time when Major Amberson dies, it's a totally different film than anything you see after that. But they had done a a sneak preview out in some place, Glendale or something. It's a second, you know, on the thing with, and I believe it was Dan Daly, Mother Carrie's Chickens was the first run on that. Okay. With uh, Betty Grable and Dan Daly. People were, you know, it's a Saturday night, and they had just seen a, a semi-funny comic musical thing, 
and then they throw magnificent Ambersons on there. Well, you know, which would have been three hours at that point. Yeah, yeah, it was. And wouldn't you kill to have the footage that Howard Hughes burned? Burned. That's the thing. If you know, because they found, I think, a lot of the footage that they took out of uh, von Stroheim's greed. That yeah. was the first famous story of all that, of where you know he had whatever the film was, four hours long, four and a half hours, and the studio forced him to do. But wasn't uh, it? Yeah, two hours. You know. That was. Um, uh, who was the actress that was the uh, – they were sisters, uh, silent movie. Gish? Yes, Lillian and Dorothy. Dorothy Gish. I believe Lillian Gish was the was the female in Greed, wasn't she? I thought it was – no, it was Asu Pitts. Oh, was it? Yeah, okay. I believe it was, yeah. Well, you know better than I am. I was going back to thinking about the sandstorm scene. That was really – that was really something. Do you know who played that on uh, on television when they did Greed? Agnes Moorhead. They did a TV version of Yeah, Green. they oh, did. Yeah. yeah, it was a one hour, and it was kind of interesting because, uh, yeah. you know, Aggie Moorhead was, was one of Orson Welles' finds. There's a great story about Agnes Moorhead and her first exposure to Orson Welles. You want to hear that one? You got it. They're at Marshall Fields, right? Yeah. And she's shopping there. And she's and I think she's probably in her early 30s at the time, maybe late 20s. And she can't get through the front door. And this is her story. I, I mean, Dick Cavett told this story on his mm. television program. And she's trying to get through the front door, well, and there's such a cr- she can't door. get through the front door to get in. It's uh, to to get into Marshall Fields to do her shopping because there's so many people oh, there. Yeah, okay. She goes inside, and what she finds is on that staircase that goes up on the on the right hand side that that curved staircase that goes up to the second floor. Yeah, there's this little boy of about nine or ten years old giving a lecture on politics and finance. And these people are so fascinated by what he has to say that these crowd, the crowd is all around him. It was Orson Welles. Oh, my God. Is that a great story? And was he really tan or did he just look tan? Well, he, he was very tall for his age, but, you know, he was, he was a uh, uh, virtuoso violinist and certified at the age of seven. Good Lord. He went, you know, Donna Bernstein, uh, Maurice Bernstein was essentially his surrogate father. His parents... Separated when he was four and got divorced when he was six, and his mother took him off to to live in Chicago, and she wanted to resume her her musical career, and it really never came to fruition. But what was interesting about it is that uh, the doctor who had cared for her mother when she had stomach cancer was a fellow named Maurice Bernstein, and he had a rather checkered past, but he was the gentleman that was responsible for declaring Orson Welles a child prodigy at the age of two. And he has this, right, actually. Well, he has this great story. And, and you know, I've, I'm working on this play, so I'm kind of blowing some of this in your direction. I, I, let, let me, because we're right in the middle of things here, but let me just remind everybody that you're listening to Dave's Gone By on UNC Radio. I'm Dave Lefkowitz, and I'm talking to Gil Moon, who is a radio broadcaster on KFKA AM Radio, which is uh, right in the heart of Greeley as well. And he is obviously a big, big fan and expert on... Orson Welles. So we're in the middle of talking about Orson and and uh, the fact that he was called a, a child prodigy at the age of two by a guy who I guess ended up raising him. Or yeah, I didn't mean to interrupt, but we're, we got so into it, I wanted to remind people where we're well, at. Well, he liked to say that he was his primary male influence until he was nine when his mother died. Hmm. But uh, he tell Bernstein tells a story. And by the way, you know what an expert is, don't you? What is an expert? That's a guy from more than fifty miles away with a suitcase. Okay. <laughs> But the doc- yeah, the doctor called him and yeah, his his, um, his brother Orson Welles' older brother isn't it? They called him Dicky. His Richard Jr. But he'd fallen on the stairs in their house on uh, Park in uh, in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and the doctor had been his 
grandmother's doctor when she was dying from cancer. And he came to the house, and the story that Bernstein told, and it's a fairly famous story, actually. He said he was coming down the stairs after treating uh, Dickie, yeah. and there was this little moppet you know, peeking at him around the corner as he's coming down the stairs. And when the little guy sees his black bag, he steps forward. And this is what Bernstein said, is that the, uh, the desire to take medicine is the primary characteristic that separates man from the other animals. He was about 18 months old. Now, you know, Orson Welles said this this was foolishness. But his mother and many of the people who talked about him when he was a child, as we talked about my own son, they didn't, he didn't talk in Mama, Daddy, this kind of thing. Right. It was in sentences. And that he had his mother had been reading to him from Lamb's Tales of Shakespeare, and then he was learning to read when he uh, was three years old. He learned to read from Midsummer Night's Dream. And so he was already in okay. tune with sentences and so on and i'm sure it was something he'd heard elsewhere or some something like that but you can imagine the shock on it and, and you know when he was when he was two years old uh bernstein filed the paperwork and so on with the university of wisconsin and uh he was declared a child prodigy at the age of two what is that oh i didn't realize you can actually officially declare oh yeah prodigies it's, I, I, it's done more like in that. europe than it does here because we don't have that many of them anymore but and what does that mean? Does that mean he's getting into a special school? Oh yeah. It, well, you know, he he his only schooling, his only official schooling, other than his mother teaching him, was at the Todd uh, School for Boys or Todd Academy. That was it was uh, founded by um, Hill, uh, Noble Hill, and his son Roger took over for him when Orson was there. And Orson was eleven when they sent him to uh, to the Todd School for Boys. And it was amazing because they had – it was a very progressive school, especially for the times. And we're thinking, what would he have been at 11? It would have been uh, 26, 1926. And while he did have to you know, take math and science and those kind of things, they did give them a great deal of uh, latitude in what they did. And he got into theater there. And by the time he was you know, 12, 13 years old, he was writing, directing, producing, starring in, in shows at the Todd School for Boys. And one of the interesting things about this is that – um, Roger Hill had been a, a fairly successful advertising executive from New York. And when his father got ill, and they thought they were going to have to close down the school, and it was his father's you know, vocation and avocation, yeah. uh, Roger jumped ship and came and ran the thing for him. And he ran it until you know, his son took over for him too. But it was an interesting thing is that he had been an advertising executive, and he had always had a wish or desire or a need to do theatricals himself. And when he discovered Orson Welles uh, as a child at 11 years old, in fact, it's interesting, he had a, 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 um, an assistant, an administrative assistant, which they probably would have called secretary at that time. She said, you need to watch this boy and keep a file on him. <laughs> <laughs> and they were friends all the way. In fact, uh, you know, I, I mentioned to you that I had uh, Christopher Welles, uh, Orson's oldest daughter, on my radio show a few wow. months ago. And she talks about she attended at uh, Todd Academy when she was young, too. She was the only girl in attendance at the Yeah, we we'll figure that would have been yeah. unusual. And she lived with, with, uh, with Roger and Hortense Hill, and, and it's interesting because she has a great deal of affection for them, too. But they were friends right to the end, and in the first chapter of her book, and if I may mention it, In My Father's Shadow, it's yeah. a magnificent story. But if you're going to look at a narrative about Orson Welles, you're missing the boat because what it is is it's a perspective of Orson Welles as a father – to a young girl who was more than just impressionable, she absolutely adored everything about him, and it's a very it's a very positive view of some of his greatest accomplishments. I think it's a wonderful book. In well, my father's the shadow, opposite of mommy dearest. You know, yes, absolutely the opposite. Yeah. She talks in there though. In the very first uh, chapter, she talks about Orson's 
um, funeral after he died. And he, well, thank God they didn't have the funeral before he died. That would be uh, well, yeah, that would have been unfortunate. Although he might have, he might have enjoyed it certainly, <laughs> yeah. certainly more than the one after he died. He would have wanted to choreograph it. And I don't yeah. spoil the book for anybody, yeah, but yeah. I will say that the, it, it was not what you would call a stellar occasion. And uh, Chrissy says that um, uh, it was held in a hot sheets motel in uh, in downtown well, Los Angeles. His funeral. Yeah, he was still married to Paula Mori at the time, and uh, he has he has a daughter with her named Beatrice. It was named for his mother, and uh, Paula said that he didn't leave any money for uh, funeral and after death expenses, and so she had to do what she could afford. He didn't leave any money for anything. Every dime he had, he spent on making movies. Actually, when Orson Welles was in like his last five years, was he doing? Any kind of movie making, or was he just appearing? Well, he had made over? F. He had made F for Fake, and it had been a tremendous flop. It was essentially an offspring of a uh, of a BBC television program, which he bought the rights to, and all of the film that they had. And he and uh, Jean-Luc Oya Kadar, the the, oh, the sculptress, uh, was his companion for the last twenty years of his life. She's actually younger than his oldest daughter, which is kind of interesting. But it was a, a fascinating thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Chrissy talks about her in very fond terms. In, in her book, there's a whole chapter dedicated to Oya, and it's fascinating to me because the two of them are closer than sisters. At any, at any rate, in the first part of the book, he, she talks about the first chapter she talks about, and um, Roger Hill was still alive at the time, and he did attend this first funeral for Orson. He didn't want to be, he did not want to be cremated. He wanted to be buried, and he wanted to be buried in Spain. Hmm. Paula had him cremated. Oh, ouch! And so here was the you know the the paper sack with his ashes on a on a, a pedestal in this hot sheets motel as she talks about it. And it was really it's terrible. And the only person from the Hollywood society, if you want to call it that, that that attended that funeral was Greg Harrison, the fellow who produced the Dean Martin television show. The only person that attended. No, this I do not understand. I mean, first of all, wouldn't the Mercury players? Some of them would have still been alive. Yeah. And what was it, 1970-something, 80s? No, he died in 1985. 85, that late. Yeah. But even so, where were they? You would figure Joseph Cotton or, or people like that. Well, you would have thought so. Now, that, that's a good point. I mean, did they and, hate him? Well, I think it was more the hatred of uh, on the part of Paula Mori, who didn't let people know that the, that the services were being held. Oh, for crying out loud. Now, this was the only time that his three daughters were in the same room at the same time, too. His, his oldest daughter, Christopher, Chrissy, yeah. His daughter with uh, Rita Hayworth, and her name was Becky, Rebecca, and uh, the youngest daughter, Beatrice, and they were all in the room. That's the only time they were ever together in their whole lives. So now it's I understand why children would have some resentments, but people working with him. Uh, from what Chrissy says, there was very little resentment on the part of anyone except Paula. They, they just didn't know. They just weren't told That's right. when and That's where. That's right. Now, Greg, Greg Harrison said that he was going to uh, to arrange a larger funeral and a, and a memorial for Orson, but to my knowledge, it never took place. So, but you know, it's interesting. His his ashes, and and Oya took care of this, which I think is fascinating because she. Did they scatter them in Spain, or no? they're in a well in Spain with, right. a, with it that's sealed off with a small plaque on it that says, "Here lies the the earthly okay. remains of the great Orson Welles." That's some uh, that's that's some kind of compensation. Right so now. what he was doing towards the end of his life was really trying to piece together um, Don Quixote, which. Uh, oh, That's yeah. going to kill Terry Gilliam too. Well, nobody, nobody's going to be able to make that movie. Did you Did you see the uh, the film that they did, the musical of it, uh, Man of La Mancha, that they did with Peter O'Toole and Sophia Loren? 
The film years yeah. ago. Yeah. yeah, it was it was such a flop. But if you look at Peter O'Toole in that, he's the personification of Wells' uh, description of Don Quixote, and okay. I just think it's wonderful. I I, and in fact, uh, Oya has has gotten licensed and released what she believes would have been Orson Welles' cut of Don Quixote, and it's available on, on um, Amazon. So he shot a lot of the... He had it all shot. He just kept doing it. He always said, but if he ever did if he ever did release it, it was going to be under the title of what, uh, When Are You Going to Finish Don Quixote? <laughs> but he did it with his own money. Actually, you, know, you know the whole Terry Gilliam story is that he, he was going to do it with uh, Jean Rochefort, no, the French I didn't. actor, and he was doing the screen test and the shooting, and then... Rochefort fell ill, and then they couldn't get the money. Kept falling through, so he gave up on it. They did a documentary about Gilliam trying to make Don Quixote. We're talking about Ter- 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 of Monty Python. Monty Python, and also Brazil uh, renowned, and and you know Gilliam's done a bunch of movies, and he's kind of the right guy to do. Yeah, not Man of La Mancha, but Don Quixote. But there is a there is a documentary out there about that. I forget what it's called. I, I have to. Google it. Yeah, uh, e- e- but, e- oh, email it's a very to good me because I'd like to see it. Yeah, it's way cool. And now, and, and Gilliam has not given up. <laughs> He's not going to get Jean Rochefort anymore because well, let's send him but... five bucks. I mean, if we could, <laughs> it seems sounds to me like it's a worthwhile project. Yeah, man. But you know, well, you know, the, Tim Burton should do it. The know. interesting, well, yeah, that that might be fascinating to see Tim Burton's uh, take <laughs> on that. If you take a look at the entire body of Orson Welles' work, most most everything he did, other than Kane, for instance, was someone else's that he had rewritten and he and he says that in an interview that he did on British television too that he doesn't feel any particular allegiance to the original that if you're going to make a a, a film or a or a an opera or a play of somebody else's work that they're merely collaborators and that whatever you're doing with it is is certainly within reason and there's a lot of people would disagree with that but if you take a look at some of the best work he did that's really how it came about for instance if you look at Don Quixote there's a great deal of Don Quixote that is done in modern day at their time, you know, the, the late 50s, early 60s, and it's filmed. In fact, there's a scene in there where where uh, Sancho and Quixote go to a motion picture. Hmm. Now, that seems really odd because we're looking at something written, what, 16th century f- yeah. Spain. I'm sure they had a lot of motion pictures going on then. But it's fascinating because he makes that transition without, without any real uh, – disruption of the story it brings it into a reality a, a sense of reality that you might not have gotten elsewhere uh i'm going to take uh, heart of darkness again when yeah. he was going to do it as a film and i have it's a you can see it on the internet most of the script that he wrote for that and he took it instead of being in london as as uh, heart of darkness is at the beginning you know the the nelly and sailing y'all yabba-dabba-doo he does it from new york and this radio program that i gave you it's actually a a, a short of what the film might have been if they had made it. I started to tell you that he even offered to make a third film for them. Uh, there's a fellow named Nicholas Blake who it was a it was a, a pen name for another fellow whose name escapes me at the moment. It's called Smiler with a Knife, and it was a, an amazing mystery novel. It was a very popular at the time that Wells was willing to make this for them, and he was going to charge them nothing for his services make it as a pot boiler to pay, make up the difference for the $50,000 he needed, right? Wow. They turned it down. You know why they turned it down, David? No. Why? Well, there was a stunning young redhead who had been with the with the Ziegfeld Follies who came over to work with the Mercury Players in about 1938, early 38, late 37. And he wanted to use her as the lead in this Smiler with a Knife. They said she was too old to be a leading lady. She was about 23, 24 years old. Hmm, who could this be? 
Well, she was under contract RKO already, and she'd done a few films, one of them with the Marx Brothers and a few others, but poor thing, she never really went on to any real notoriety. Her name was Lucille Ball. Hey, what, what movie did Lucy make with the Marx Brothers? Oh, I'm trying to think. She was the secretary, and it was the one when... Uh, uh, well, it had to be an early one. Like, yeah, it was a... Uh, no, it was after Coconuts. Uh, the, she Monkey, was a new... Monkey Business? Monkey Business, I believe, okay. yes. Yeah, she has a small part in it, but she's there. And she'd done a couple other films. But, you know, if you listen to the Orson Welles Almanac, which we play fairly regularly on Golden Year Theater every Sunday evening from 6 until 10, uh, she is a very prominent part of that. And she did several roles on uh, on the Mercury Theater on the air, too. But, wait, but, okay, so they said, we don't want you using Lucille Ball. They said, said the film... He, he insisted, and that no, they wouldn't give it. They wouldn't accept his offer to make the film for nothing. But one of the reasons they didn't want to do it is they said she was too old to be a leading lady. Well, anybody who'd read Nicholas Blake's Smiler with a Knife knew that the leading lady was probably in her early thirties. So it was ridiculous. I believe, and I and I yeah. do, I do believe this. I do believe that that uh, George Schaefer, who was the head of RKO at the time, and he had been a very successful. He was over at Universal and had pulled their fat out of the fire already. That's why the people in New York hired him to come over to RKO, and they were paying off their debt, and they were doing very well. They were making some great films. But I think he was afraid of Wells because he had no control. If any, The only thing that Orson Wells got out of his contract was complete control. control. What you saw, that it was the only time you would ever see it in his lifetime, what you saw on the screen was 100% Orson Wells, Citizen King. Wow. It's amazing. It's amazing. You know, they they had two uh, two versions of it before they came up with the Hearst version, too, which is kind of interesting. One was mostly about uh, Howard Hughes, which was the reason Howard Hughes, when he bought RKO, destroyed everything that had Orson Welles' name on it. And uh, Joseph Cotton was scheduled to play or, uh, Howard Hughes in that film. Wouldn't okay. that have been great? That would have been, that would have been pretty cool. You know, Joseph Cotton's parents didn't want him to be an actor. He came from a family of pharmacists. Do you know that? No. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, back then, even now, yeah, what parent really wants their kid to go into show business? Well, my father, God rest his soul, he passed away about a year ago. But, you know, he, uh, when I was here at, at, at Colorado State College, before it was UNC, a fellow named Gary D'Angelo had, was our faculty advisor for the fraternity that I happened to have pledged. And he encouraged me to change my major to theater arts and drama, which I did. And my funding dried up within, you know, a cup of coffee. <laughs> Your father just came over and smacked him. He oh, said, what's the matter with you? I could smell a lawsuit in the offing. My father could see no value whatsoever in being, you know, in anything show business related, you know. Well, I, I'll tell you a story in just a moment. Oh, I'd love to I hear a story. That, I didn't uh, mean to monopolize this. No, no, it's, it's 11.01, and you are, well, you would know that you're listening to UNC Radio because the way you're listening to it is either on the Internet at UNC Radio. Dot com, or if you are going to the University of Northern Colorado, you're listening on Channel 3 on your television sets in the dorms. So I hope you're enjoying our conversation here with Gil Moon, radio broadcaster and expert on all things old-time radio, which we'll talk about in a little bit, and also old-time movies and certainly Orson Welles, and uh, just having a fabulous time. I'm Dave Lefkowitz, by the way. name of the program is Dave's Gone By. And if you want to see, first of all, before we get back to that, let me make sure I give you the, uh, the playlist of some of the songs we were playing just before we started talking to Gil. In honor of Gil, we played Moon Songs. So we heard 
backtracking. We heard the Beatles doing Mr. Moonlight, Amy Rigby with Sleepin' With the Moon, Grateful Dead Mountains of the Moon from their Achamacha collection, Joni Mitchell, The Judgment of the Moon and Stars, Chuck Berry, Havana Moon, and John Cale, Deep in the Coral Moon. Okay. Got that done. Oh, I always forget to do it. I always go back, like, oh, I didn't say what the, the songs were. Now you know. Now I've told you. Now we can go back to talking to Gil and telling you the story of um, a similar thing, like when I was casting about where I wanted to go to college. Because you know, I had good grades in high school, mm-hmm. and it was time. It was that year before. And I said, like, what do I want to do in my life? Where do I want to go? And incredibly supportive parents, but also worried parents. They're like, well, what's he going to do? And, and, and so around. I had a, a guidance counselor who said, you know, the, really the best thing for him would be to take a year off and go travel the world. I agree. What that would have been what a wonderful, what a wonderful thing that would have been. It, I, I am so sorry I did not. I would have been such a different person. Uh, but my parents looked at her like, are you crazy? <laughs> Are you going to pay for it? Are you going to go around for a year without a college education? Uh, they, were, they were like, you know, that was not even a consideration. Yeah. It was yeah. like, no, no way. Wish I had. I, I was I was probably mentally too young. To you and I, but. you know, that one year. Now, my, I have to credit my son with, with, with a, uh, a very astute observation here. He has a boy who's... Uh, Who's twenty years old now? His name is Randall, and he's as close to me as anybody on the planet. But he told his son, my son David, told his son Randall okay. that you need to take two years and just live before you take on responsibilities, before you consider uh, what you're going to do for a living for your life. Get a job, enjoy your life, and do it. And what's happened is that Randy is probably one of the most well-adjusted people I know in the in the whole world. He got a very good job, and he's doing very well. He has a girlfriend, and they're they're very happy together, and things are going perfectly uh, along the lines of what I think my son would like to have seen his life go along. And I think it's that's wise. I would have loved to have done the same thing. I think it's great. And you know what Mr. Wells did is that he rejected a full-ride scholarship for the time to Harvard University after he graduates at 15 from the Todd's <laughs> School for Boys. Yeah. And he, he was originally going to go to London's West End to, to do Shakespearean theater. But when he got to Galway, he, he, as he said, jumped ship, bought a little donkey and cart, and toured Ireland painting for about eight months, seven months, ended up in Dublin. He needs the money, and, and he, he talks about this is when he decided to become an actor. He sees an advertisement for um, for auditions at the Gate Theater that was being run at the time by uh, Hilton Edwards and Michael McClaymore. He goes and bluffs his way in, saying that he's you know 18 years old. He was only 16. He started smoking cigars that day so that he would look like an older actor. And he presents himself as a famous actor specializing in ingenue from New York, and he has you know a, a list of his, his um, shows that he had done at Todd uh, that he was using as his oh. as his you know he foot in the door. No, I've done this and that, and yeah. Uh, yeah, he just you know, and, and he was willing to let them believe whatever they wanted. <laughs> well, McClaymore was at the West End in London at the time, making money so they could keep the gate open, much like Orson did all, all the way through yeah. his life, doing other people's films so he could do what he wanted to do. And Hilton Edwards says to him, well, we don't have any paying parts in here, but if you want to participate as an amateur, it's okay. We'll, we'll let you do it. And if things work out, maybe we'll use you. 
Well, in Orson's words, he says, I realized that my rent was paid at my shabby hotel through the end of the week. I was going to let Dame Fortune take a hand. The third day of rehearsals, one of the lead players in Jusus storms off because he was going to be expected to do promotional work for the play. And as Orson says, he stood in the middle of the aisle on his way out the door and proclaims, I am an actor, not a pitchman. And so Orson Welles all but begs Hilton Edwards. I am an actor and a pitchman. Yeah, well, I don't know anybody who can, how could you make the the (laughs) distinction? What are you talking about? Yeah. So... Edwards lets him read for this part, and Wells was a quick study, even at that age. I mean, he could memorize so quickly. And he talks about throwing the the script aside and then giving what was the most ridiculous interpretation of the Duke and Jesus that had ever been done, but it was a little soliloquy in the second act where he, he makes the transition from realizing where he is to where he will be. And he said when he finished giving the audition, he looks around and everything was dead silent. Every eye in the place was on him, and he said... A little embarrassed, so he goes up there and uh, he admits to Edwards. He says, "I know this isn't my best work, but with you know some rehearsals, I'm sure I could do it." And Edwards says to him, "Bloody awful is what it was, but you can have the part if you promise me one thing: I can teach you how to play this part, and I want you to listen to me, but not follow me blindly. Mm-hmm. More importantly, listen to yourself and be able to tell whether what you're doing is good or lousy." Oh wow. Well, those are you know etched in stone somewhere. Yeah. yeah. Well, Hilton Edwards stayed with him until you know he well, died. If there's ever great advice for an actor, it's like listen to me, but don't follow me blindly. Absolutely. Yeah. You know that that should yeah. be etched on every director's uh, office door. Yeah. Listen to me, but don't follow me blindly. And I think it's great. And what's kind of cool is, is the other thing that should be etched on every door that I really had forgotten about acting and directing that I learned by taking a class at UNC over the summer with a director that we'll, we'll talk about for a moment because he's directing a show uh, at UNC starting this weekend, starting Thursday. Is that Bright Ideas? Bright Ideas. Oh, I want to talk about that, yeah. A guy named Tom McNally. He's been I know in Tom. school for ages and ages in, in performing visual arts. So first of all, I just want to tell everybody, because this is a UNC station, that Bright Ideas is uh, coming in just a couple of days. It's a story, I think, about parents and trying to get their kids into uh, one of the better schools. I, th- I think that's... Yeah, it's an advanced preschool. And I had those young people, uh, uh, Mahri and uh, and Brandon, on my show. They'll be on tomorrow morning. If you listen from uh, 10 to 11, you'll hear them on, uh, go, on Senior Circle. So in other words, the two stars, the young stars of Bright Ideas, are going to be on Gil's show on KFKA Radio tomorrow morning at 10. And they're both appearing in a show called Bright Ideas, directed by Tom McNally, a professor at UNC, and who I was really privileged enough to take a class with over the summer, and he said the other thing about being an actor or a director, the, the question is, what is, what, you know, if you're an actor on the stage and there's another person on the stage, what is the one thing you need to know? The, ba- the basic thing is, the question is, what do I want from that other person? Oh, oh, everything, oh. Everything comes from that. Yeah. In directing and acting. It's like, I'm here, what do I want from that person over there. You know, that's and that brilliant. Pulls you through completely. That is brilliant when you think about it because, yeah. you know, knowing what, you know, it's one thing to know what your own expe- expectations are of, you know, your director's expectations of you, but your expectations of yourself, which is where we were going with this Orson Welles remarks. Yeah. 
But what are your expectations of your counterparts, your other actors? That's you know, David. That's brilliant. Well, don't credit me, right, uh, Tom? I mean, and he's just synthesizing. Uh, stuff that he learned from other folks. Uh, I mean, he didn't invent that, but he codified it. Well, you know, I've had Tom on. I've had Tom on Senior Circle a time or two, and he was invited to be there this uh, this uh, this week when we when we taped the show. He was just un- unfortunately was unable to make it because of previous commitments. Sure. But you know, I have to be honest with you. My exposures to Tom McNally is that he is he's humble, but he's ex- extremely competent. Oh, yeah. And one of the things that I just admire is that he's he's not. He doesn't have the tendency as, as some, and we know who, you know who we're talking about. I'm talking about in the professional fields that, that are constantly blowing their own horn. Tom no, no, McNally no, like never that does that. No. You have to pull it out of him. And if I may say so, David, you're a lot like that too. It's hard, you know, when we've That's because I'm so wonderfully humble. Well, you but know. you know, we've had dinner together a couple of times. We've been yeah. to plays together and stuff like that. And one of the things, and, and even my, uh, my lovely wife mentioned this last week on the way home when we were talking, is that you know, Dave's had really a hell of a life. You've done some wonderful things in your life, and you kind of keep it to yourself. Well, <laughs> I really shouldn't if I want to make money in this world. But you know, I, I, I okay. But let's let's it. talk about that money. Yeah, what about is that it? what you're doing this for? Is that why we're doing the radio here? <laughs> I wish I were doing. Yeah, ra- radio's where the big money is, yeah, right? Right. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it's I, I. Well, thank you for the compliments, but yeah, I've, I've done some really cool stuff. I'll, I'll totally toot my horn when it's time to. And there are things that I'm very confident about and things that I'm, I'm not so sure about. I feel very confident when I'm on the radio. I can look at a microphone like you and go, okay, put me on for an hour. I can just talk, take a phone call, play music. It feels natural. I feel, and I will not be, you know, humble or shy about that. I know, hey, I, I can do this, and I can do this pretty well. Other things, you know, people want to say, hey, you did that pretty I'm like, thank you. I, I didn't, thanks so much. <laughs> Well, I was impressed with your knowledge, again, of the theater, because uh, Broadway theater, to me, has had a fascination since I was still pretty little. My parents took us to New York. Uh, my father was an airline pilot with United Airlines, and we're talking about in the golden years of the airline business. I went to work for him in 1952, so imagine. Whoa. My father flew with some of the great names in aviation history. Like? Uh, Bud Gurney, who was the wingman for for Lindbergh when he was flying the mail for the... For so he, any girls that would come for the second? No, no, no. I have no idea. <laughs> My father was not one of those who talked about it, but uh, but nonetheless, uh, uh, the names uh, were just legion. The numbers of people because my father starts as a, you know as a, a co-pilot, and uh, uh, he was originally supposed to go to Chicago out of out of Denver. He'd hired on in Denver, but we ended up going to San Francisco. Well, San Francisco was a, a, a fairly mature domicile for the company at the time, and a lot of those guys who had chosen specifically to fly out of San Francisco because it was uh, kind of a prestigious location at the time for the company, more so than Chicago being the corporate headquarters. San Francisco kind of ran their own show. So my father was out there for 33 years, and we <clears throat> he flew with some really big names, but my father would never talk about it, much as oh, see, you, yeah. Dave. He, was, uh, he just says, well, that's just my job. That's what I do. But I can remember... Um, if I can tell you a little story, a fellow named Frank Knight, who was one of the legends in aviation, he was very instrumental in in, uh, in Lindbergh's life and oh. Bud Gurney's life and so on. Frank Knight, uh, when I was at about the fourth grade, there were these little series of books that they had in the library about the life of Buffalo Bill and the okay. life of this. One of them was Pilot – I'm sorry, I said Frank. It's Jack Knight, Pilot okay. Jack Knight. How could I forget this? I mean, this is ridiculous. Okay. Okay. But Jack Knight – 
I'm reading this book when I'm in fourth grade, and I'm I'm thinking, man, this is guy's a hero. Gets to about two thirds of the way through the book, he's flying for United Airlines. I think oh, my dad flies for United Airlines. Wow! Hey, yeah. So it. I make this big thing, and this yeah, it's exactly where I'm going with this. My dad used to pick me up from school once in a while, particularly on paydays, and we'd drive up from Sunnyvale up to San Francisco. He'd pick up his paycheck at the dispatch office right there. So we go, we pick up his his yeah. his uh, paycheck, and uh, he's instead of walking back out the car, he takes me over in the weather bureau where because you know the airlines all used to have their own weather bureaus so back in a corner there's a desk back there and there's an old fellow sitting there smoking a pipe with a mustache and he's got this cardigan grace cardigan but he's still wearing a tie because united airlines had uniform ties and stuff like that the placard on his desk says frank i'm sorry jack knight why do i keep saying frank i think there's a somebody else i must have run across jack knight and that was the same guy. He had retired from the airline when he was 60. He had come back to work for the airline after his wife died three years later and was working, filling out flight plans and doing weather reports for the airline. And he served in that capacity till he was 81 when he died. But here my dad takes me there. I, I just read the book, right? I go there. And, of course, my dad was always on a pedestal for me. I always thought he was John Wayne from the very beginning. I mean, he was... Uh, Top of the well, I mean, top yeah. of the when 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 a kid gets to say to all the other kids in the playground, well, my dad is an airline pilot. I mean, yeah. <laughs> well, see, we're living in Sunnyvale, California, and and you know, Lockheed was the big deal. Came in there oh, in yeah. 50, 54. but Moffett Field, everybody was there. Their their dads all worked for the for the Navy. They were all in the Navy, and there were a lot of them were pilots and stuff like that. And here, my dad was singled out separate from the whole rest of them because he was in the airline industry, mm. which at the time was fairly prestigious. I mean, it was growing growing like topsy. My father finished number seven on the seniority list in San Francisco, and he was too old to go to work for the airline when he when he hired on because they had, they had an age limit at 28. My father did so well, so well on yeah. the pre. You know, they have a thing called the Stainine exam and stuff like that. You have to take these competency and, and proficiency exams that you take. My father had the highest grade that had ever been given on those, and he held it for 30 years. Wait, 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 wait. What do you mean they had an age limit of 28 to if, fly? If you, yeah, to go to work for the airline. That was their age limit at the time. If you To start work? Yep. Oh, so you could stay at the airline for 30 years. Yeah, but, but you couldn't, you couldn't you get, get hired on if you were past 28. And it, it was so one of those rules that's gone away now, but the, yeah. the, re- the reasoning was good, I think, at the time. They probably, there were so many people coming out of the uh, World War II, for, you know, Tracy's yeah. Aces and all those other people that went to work for the airline. There were so many of them out there, and they, they just put a limit on it that at 28, they wanted to get 30 years out of them. They got 33 out of my pop. But, you know, the whole thing was is that it, if he had not done that well on the exam, there's no way he'd have gotten the job. Interesting story, though. The fellow who finally did get a, the, the, the beat my dad by, by, I think it was four-tenths of a point or something like that, yeah. flew to San Francisco. He'd taken the, the exam in Chicago, flew to San Francisco, came out to my parents' house and took him out to dinner because he wanted to meet the – SOB that right. held that for 30 years. Well, it's kind of like the baseball player. Who's, yeah. Like, yeah who beat, who's going to beat my record by one hole? Yeah, Hank Aaron, right. Yeah. yeah. But, you, but actually, you, you kind of got off topic because you were going to – you mentioned the flying and the thing, but it was it was in relation to the Broadway theater and stuff like oh, that. Oh, well, my that, – That's my domain. That's what I was Yeah, I wanted to talk with that about you too because I'm very – and by the way, we'll be going to see Bright Ideas on, on Thursday night, mm-hmm. and I'm excited about that. And I hope that you and Joyce are going to join us. We can go to dinner and then go over there if you, if you guys are so inclined. We'd love to, yeah. Joyce is my wife, by the way. I'm Dave Lefkowitz. You're listening 
the day has gone by, on UNC Radio, on your computer at uncradio.com. I'm here with Gil Moon, radio broadcaster. He hosts Senior Circle Sunday at 10 on KFKA AM. And was it KFKA.com? It's 1310kfk.com. 1310kfka.com. And also on Sunday nights from 6 until 10 Mountain Time, he hosts Golden Years. And actually, let's just take a moment and tell everybody, if they tune in tomorrow, this Sunday, which would be uh, September 26th, what would they hear on Golden Years Radio? Well, we actually go on the air at 6.10 because we have the top-of-the-hour news. We run the news for CBS and so on and then you know commercials. But the first show we're going to play, and you may be interested in this one, is called Superstition. And what it is, it traces back and tells on the radio from 1935 the origins of certain superstitions. Cool. And I love this one. It's called Three on a Match, and you will be surprised where that came from. It's uh, kind of a fascinating story. It almost falls into the same uh, the same thing as the very famous Orson Welles story about the the critic who died after uh, Voodoo Macbeth when they put a curse on him. It's very much the same kind of thing. I'm going to be playing these in the six ten uh, hour for some time because I've run across. I think I have a hundred. Well, not quite a hundred. Ninety two of them, something like that. At six thirty, the mysterious traveler, which you may remember, that was the one that had bromocelso, 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 bromocelso. Yeah, and this one's called Out of the Past from 1944. And by the way, David, if you don't mind my saying so, uh, we take requests on Golden Years Theater, which separates us from the other three guys who do old-time radio in Colorado. We take requests, and the reason we can do that is because I have what I think may be one of the largest collections of classic radio anywhere. And I've been saving, I've been collecting these since 1967, before your mother was born. And my wife bought me, for my birthday in 1967, the, uh, the Longines Symphonette Golden Collection of Jack Benny Radio. And it's six LPs, and they are marvelous. And I listened to them so you could hear both sides at the same time. That's how many times I listened. <laughs> that got me started. But I have in my collection, which we've all converted with, with the help of, uh, of my very good friend Bill Miles, we've co- put them all into MP3s. They're, they're on... A terabyte drive, which I have backed up in three locations, one in a safe deposit box and one off-site. But I have these out there in MP3 format so that I can sort through and find it. Somebody calls in, for instance, uh, one that we're going to play at 730. is a fellow here in in town named Dale who's a regular listener to my show, and he wanted to hear the incomparable Charlie Chan. And, he, and we picked out one on there, which is the best quality one I have, I think. is called the Telltale Hands from 45. That'll be at 730. But So if people have requests, send them to Gil, G-I-L-1-L, Gil at 1310kfk.com, and I will get them in within the next two weeks. So returning to the schedule at 7 o'clock, then, after Mysterious Traveler, we've got Mr. Ace and Jane, Jane and Goodman Ace. Remember Easy Aces? This, was, uh, this goes back to the mid-30s and played on through the early 50s. Anyway, this is a 1948 that was specifically done for the Armed Forces Radio Network, and it's called Did You Ever See a Dream Walking? And it's about horse racing, if you can believe that. 7.30, as I said, the incomparable Charlie Chan. At 8 o'clock, the College of Musical Knowledge, which is normally hosted by Kay Kaiser. Right. But he was uh, on sabbatical or something at the time, and Phil Harris is the host for this one. Now, I met Phil Harris once in San Francisco. You know, he lived up in Hillsdale, not too far from Bing Crosby. They were very close. And uh, and not to, to be a name dropper here, but when I worked for a company that was owned by the 49ers, we ran the data center for them. Uh, 
we had the opportunity to go to a lot of parties with some of these people, and and this was a, a situation where my wife, at the age of uh, twenty twenty one, was was hobnobbing with some very big names at the time, simply because I had the opportunity to be working for the Forty Niners. Yeah. At any rate, I'm in. I'm walking into the Wells Fargo building, and I see this very tall fella trying to look at the director, and he's got his glasses going back and forth trying to focus, and I recognized he was Phil Harris. I walked up to him, and he pretty big. I said, excuse me, aren't you Phil Harris? He said, yeah, boy, can you read this for me? And so, you know, I'm, he's looking for his optometrist. Get this. I okay? guess so, yeah. So I'm on my way to the to the 10th floor, and, he, and he's uh, he's going to the 7th floor. So they were on the elevator, and I said, you know, because I used to listen to KSFO radio all the time, which you know, Don Sherwood and that much. I said, I heard one of your... Uh, one of your records on the radio the other morning says it must have been a damned old radio. <laughs> Marvelous guy. Anyway, this particular episode is 1944 from San Luis Obispo, California. Now, I picked this one because my father was stationed in the Army at Camp Roberts, which was just outside of Atascadero. San Luis Obispo is fairly close to them. There's a reasonable chance, and I didn't ask my father because he's been gone for some time, but there's a reasonable chance he may have been there at this particular broadcast. Oh, wow. And I have another one that was a Bob Hope one that was done from Camp Roberts, and I would have to believe my pop was probably at that one. Never ask him about that because he never talked much about it. But anyway, from 1944, Phil Harris College of Musical Knowledge. At 8.30, the great John Daner, one of the most recognizable voices in, in classic radio, Have Gun Will Travel. Now, this has the distinction of being the only radio program that was on television before it was on radio. And this was from well, 1960. When was it, 1960? Yeah. See, I, I would have assumed that really that kind of radio was gone by then. Nope, they still had it. In fact, if you if you go out there, not a lot, but I'd say probably maybe 3 to 5% of the shows I play are 60 and later. And there was a revival for a time of old-time radio with the ABC, uh, or the CBS Mystery Theater and stuff like that, oh. E.G. Marshall. This particular episode is called he no, uh, Hell Knows No Fury, and this has some comedy elements in it, but it's not really a funny story. But it's interesting because John Daner really personified more of what the character in Have Gun Will Travel, Paladin character, was than perhaps uh, Richard Boone did. Richard Boone got the notoriety for it because television, you know, it went from a nothing to number three in a matter of three weeks. It was a very, very well-received show. And then at 9 o'clock, you probably remember these, the Lux Radio Theater. These were world-famous and uh, people listen to these from everywhere. It originally started out with, uh, oh, it's a bald-headed guy in uh, from Paramount, uh, Cecil B. DeMille. Oh, yeah. And he started it out on CBS. Incidentally, here's an interesting factoid for you. When they went from uh, CBS to NBC, it was the Orson Welles Mercury Theater on the air that replaced them on CBS. At any rate, I have one called Whistle Stop. This was an original film that was done by George Raft, and uh, he was not. He is mentioned in the in the uh, prologue to the or the epilogue to this show, but Alan Ladd stepped in and did it. Now I don't know if you remember Alan Ladd or not, but Alan Ladd was one of the great voices of radio in was his he day. Shane? Yes, yeah, that's okay. right, Shane. Very good, very good. Don't know that many old I'm movies. proud of you. Blue Dahlia. Actually, this was uh, recorded while he was uh, Blue Dahlia was in the theaters. And Evelyn Keys, who was probably a name long forgotten, but a very fine actress from 1946. I could bore you to death with this for hours, and I probably will if you give me half a chance. But I'll be honest with you, this is a job that was tailor-made for this little fat guy because I have loved old-time radio for as long as I can remember. Um, I grew up, I lived with my grandfather until I was eight, and uh, my uncle was uh, was living there at the time until he went to work or went to the Navy. 
But I can remember listening to old time radio in the late forties. With so you were listening to not nostalgically; it was it was, was actually being broadcast. Yeah. And you know, here's something interesting: many of these shows that we play on Golden Years Theater were originally broadcast on thirteen ten KFKA. Because KFK has been around for 85 years. Whoa. It's the oldest radio station in Colorado, only the third radio station, licensed radio station, uh, west of the Mississippi. So we've been there a while. So, But you were, yeah, and you were in Colorado, so maybe you, were you yeah. listening on KFK? No, I was listening on usually KOA or KLZ because we lived in South Denver. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, my grandfather had uh, had bought an old dairy barn and turned it into a house when he had his family and... Uh, my mother and my father and my my aunt and my uncle and my sister and I all lived there with my grandfather until my dad would work for the airline and we moved out to San Francisco. But these old radio shows, I, I have to tell you, you, talk about nostalgia. I love I love a mystery. Do you remember that Carl E. Morris had the, the train at the beginning, Jack Doc and Reggie, and also you know uh, uh, Tony Randall was was. Uh, was Reggie on those shows. No, I had no idea. Okay. Yeah, he did radio a lot, and I think he was like 16 or 17 years old. My uncle, one year, when, when uh, summer came around, took a there was a, a, a chicken house uh, coop out mm-hmm. away from the house, and it wasn't that far away, maybe, you know, 10 yards, 15 yards, something like that. It wasn't that far away. It, was, it seemed like a long distance when you're four yeah, years, three or four years morning. old. Yeah, right. So he fixed it up out there as a little place for us. And we had bunk beds, you know, that he had made there. We were sleeping on cardboard, but he ran a a cord out there, an extension cord, and we had a little radio. Well, we call it a monkey radio, but those little brown Crosley radios with that great big dial on it and a light, right? He put it out there, and I can remember laying out there that summer. And that would have probably been about the summer of '49. And listening to I Love a Mystery, because that we knew that was coming on, I think it was at 9 o'clock, and we could lay out there and listen to I Love a Mystery. See, people, this, this is kind of the, the interesting thing. I mean, it is it's is something missing now when you can go on the Internet and go to YouTube or go on iTunes and get virtually everything. I mean, not really, but if, if a kid wants to listen to... If a kid wants to watch the NBC lineup for Thursday night, and they don't, they're not home, yeah. they can go to Vivo or, or whatever that is that, that NBC uses and see 30 Rock and see all these things. Then they can go on iTunes and hear one of four million songs that have been recorded in the past hundred years. And then they can go on YouTube and see a clip from a 1970. And it, it's unbelievably wonderful. But isn't there also, in some ways, this idea of way back when you had to go through some things to get to hear or see the thing that you really, you know, you had to be in this bunk and I had to run a wire and it was exactly at 9 o'clock and you had to be sitting there looking at the radio or, you know, when I was growing up watching a movie on TV or seeing a show, oh, you had to be there and you had to, you, you know, it's amazing how much you remember from a show you've seen once and then 25 years later you recall it until you see it again or a movie. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, uh, in 1954, the the fall season of 54, Walt Disney came up with the Disneyland on television, right? Yeah. Everyone I knew, that was the night of the week. The only thing that that took second place to was Navy Log, which was on Thursday nights. <laughs> Navy Log. Navy Log. Well, but, you know, I'm growing up in a town, yeah, it was all Navy, right? Yeah. But Disneyland, and you came on and you watched that, and everybody talked about that the next day, and your whole life, it seemed... Now, there's good and there's bad about it, but I'm going to go back a little further than that. And when we were talking about the great Orson Welles, he coined the phrase theater of the mind. Now, many people have taken credit for it, but he was the first one to say it. 
And it was because you had to be a participant. You could not be a simple observer if you're listening to radio, particularly radio drama, particularly radio characters like George and Gracie. Uh, Jack Webb was probably, he was a master at this, and he was still at KGO Radio when we moved to California. So I would listen to him and, you know, the, um, oh, Jeff Regan, Investigator, and Pat Novak for Hire. These were all predecessors of of uh, of Dragnet. He was doing Dragnet on radio, going to Los Angeles once a week, but he still was a regular on KGO Radio in San Francisco. The thing of it is, is that you knew what those people looked like. The reason I'm saying you couldn't be just an, a, an observer, you had to be a participant. You form the vision, the images in your mind of what Lucy looks like, of what George and Gracie look like. You may have seen them in the movies, and that gave you a help, but you'd never seen Jack Webb, or you didn't know you'd seen Jack Webb. He did do a hand. Incidentally, you know, he was Artie in uh, in Sunset Boulevard. We've been, you know, you and oh, I, I have remember. The in movie the film. Yes, he was Artie. I, I haven't seen it in ages. I have to remember. But, well, but you know, people make fun of that image of families in the 1940s. Well, make fun of it all you want. Radio, yeah, but it was wonderful. Yeah, because you kind of concentrate. There people don't understand that. It wasn't just background like modern radio is or, you know, you're working all day and somebody's got the radio on and it keeps you going because they're playing music. It was There's a reason you just sort of sat and listened and stared at the box. Because mm-hmm. if you were doing other stuff, you were missing it. You weren't completely there. I mean, I guess you could do some housework, but still... For, for a show that you really wanted to, to get the jokes or to follow the mystery or the creepy, you know, chiller, who's the, the murderer, you wanted to really be in the moment. Absolutely, know? absolutely. Now, you mentioned daytime, people doing their housework and stuff like that. What was one of the most successful genres of all radio was the soap, soap opera. opera. sure. And they, they called them soap operas because they were dramatic presentations in the daytime, but most often they were, they were sponsored by Procter & Gamble or White King or soaps of some kind like that because that's who their audience was. Right. But, you know, we just lost the great Art Linkletter a few months or a few yeah. weeks ago. Art Linkletter capitalized that, but he took it, I think, a step further in that he involved people's lives in the house party, the Art Linkletter house party during right. the day. He involved their lives by bringing them people they wanted to hear. Do you remember, or well, you don't remember, but I remember his early radio programs when the house party, and he would bring people in from from motion pictures and have them talk about their the, about their part in it. And they weren't always just the actors or the directors, but they used to bring a fellow named Perce Westmore, who was a, a very famous from the Westmore family, a, a makeup artist. And you still see the name Westmore on films today because they have a consulting group that does that. It's an outgrowth of Perce and his brother, whose name uh, escapes me at the moment, but they would be on Art Linkletter show. Those things carried over into television very well because the house party was on television, I believe, for 33 years. And that was a very long run for a daytime show. Soap operas came onto television, but I think they lost some of the magic because Our Gal Sunday, you had an image of it, and it was most often based on what your experience had been. Like if you had family who lived on a farm, you knew what the Sunday farm looked like. It was your farm. And I think that's a big loss. TV showing you one particular exactly, farm. Yeah. Exactly. And it's kind of a shame, don't you think? Yeah. Well, some, you know, it's the old Judy Collins line, something's gained and something's lost. Let's get back to Broadway for a minute. And I don't yeah. think I've ever met anybody that has a greater knowledge of Broadway and the history of Broadway than you do, David. And I'm so pleased to have made your acquaintance. Well, I can introduce you to a few people who know a lot more than I do, but thank you. But yeah. you're educating me every time we get together. And I will, again, thank you for... Uh, 
for exposing me again. I had known about it before, but Sunset Boulevard, which actually we're going to see tonight down they're, at the they're doing Madison. It in Arvada, right? Yeah, yeah, and I can't wait to see it. But uh, I love that album. I have listened to it so many times. I just and it's to me that's what musical theater should be. It's so Define, beautiful. What do you mean? I think it not necessarily that it needs to be a, a motion picture made into it, but the music telling the story, and that's one of the things I like best about Andrew Lloyd Webber. Mm. I think, uh, aside from Cats, which I'm not a real fan of, but I do think that Phantom was was very much like that. And regardless of whose production you see or whose version of Phantom you see, even if you go back in retro to to the Claude Rains motion picture, yeah. the Phantom of the Opera. Or the Long Cheney one, yeah. Again, you still are are seeing it, or you are experiencing it, with some elements of Andrew Lloyd Webber's presentation of it, because you, you the music is different and everything is different. But you're still I'm I'm I hesitate to say comparing it to because that's not fair, but you do have a uh, a feeling of familiarity from Andrew Lloyd Webber's that goes back to that, and you say, oh, that's where that came from. Oh, okay, that's yeah. how they. That's how that evolved. I don't know if you've seen the, the Claude Rains from, I think it's 52. Herbert Lom did it. And, you know, Academy been... Award winner for its set decoration, though, the, the Claude Rains one. And if you look at it, it was, it was a very well-produced film. Yeah. And Claude Rains never did a bad, bad performance in his life. I'm sure he never did. Even some of the, the most despicable characters he ever got stuck with, he did a marvelous job in depicting them, so... Now, about Broadway theater, yeah. my first exposure, and I told you this before, yeah. was West Side Story. And my father and mother took us to see it because we were staying at the Taft Hotel in New York City. And we could see from the dining room the painting on the side, you know, the, the promotional uh, poster on the side of the building next to it. And my parents took us to see that. And you remember Carol Lawrence is the only one I remember. Well, I never she, saw her. Anybody, but know, she okay, was yeah. Maria. Right. And, that, and I remember I couldn't believe because I'd never seen anything like that. What am I, 10 years old? Wow. And I was just blown away. And the, just the feeling of being in that, and it was crowded. It was very, very crowded. Just the feeling of being there. And I'm so in awe of your knowledge of it, but your opportunity and experience to have gone to those things. How many Broadway shows have you seen, David? Thank you for asking, Jill. Um, yeah, I feel like this is your show, and I'm just kind of guesting here. I love it. Um, I oh, Thousands. Because, I mean, I had the opportunity. I was born in... New York. I'm a yeah. New Yorker until a year ago when I moved out to Greeley, Colorado with my lovely wife, Joyce. Um, so if you figure I started, I mean, I saw a couple of shows when I was a kid. So, of course, I think I think my first Broadway show was The Magic Show. Makes sense because the kids, you know. Is that right? Kids with Doug Hanging, if you remember. Him. Yes. And, um, and they also took me, of course, to Fiddler on the Roof a couple of times. So I did get to see Who's, who's version? Who? Well, I saw Zero. I think I saw Zero twice. Once when I was too young to even... You know, they ought to bronze you and put you in the window. That was... Uh, uh, people would kill to see that oh, performance. Yeah. And I, I did see him, and I do remember this, towards the end of, his, like, the last stage of that last Fiddler that he did. So that is a memory. I do recall him. And I remember... The, the, one, the thing I remember most about Zero Mostel and Fiddler on the Roof, not from, obviously, the record albums or, or seeing clips of him, but from seeing him in person, was actually intermission. Because we knew he was old, and we knew he was not well. And suddenly, at intermission, the announcer comes on. And everybody in the audience was holding their breath. Because we figured, oh no, Zero's going to, you know, they're going to get the understudy for the second act. 
And it turned out to be an announcement about, I forget, it wasn't cell phones back then, of course, yeah. but it had nothing to do with that. It, it was like, if your lights are on and the, uh, could, could you please turn that off or whatever it was, or you have five minutes left before intermission's over. And every, literally the whole auditorium exhaled when we realized, oh, Zero's coming back. <laughs> We're going to see him. What again. was the theater? Which, which theater do you remember? Oh, I have to, to look okay. that up. But we're talking, you know, 1970s at this this point. I'm pretty sure of it. We saw Herschel Bernardi do that out in in California in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And regardless of what you think of his interpretation, I thought he was marvelous. But, you know, that's a show that's hard to do a bad job at. It really is. I mean, I I ended up seeing Topol, who did it on Broadway years back. He was very good, but... the joke of that production was because he's Topol yeah. and he takes all his moments. A three-hour show is actually three and a half. Yeah, I don't yeah. mind. It's Fiddler. I don't mind three and a half hours of yeah. Fiddler on the Roof. And then Albert Molina, Alfred Molina, Alfred, did it yeah. about five years ago, and that was very. It was actually a very nice production. Not he, the the ideal, but it was really nice. Let me ask you this: You've yeah. been to a, a lot of local theaters here. Now you've been here a year. You and I have been together once, and we saw Bye Bye Birdie last week over right. at Raj and Kathy's place at the Union Colony Dinner Theater. Mm-hmm. Maybe this is a, a, less than a question and more than an observation. Yeah. But I think that there there is something magic too about about local theater, which oftentimes is overlooked. People don't go to see local theater because they say, "Oh, I've already seen uh, Zero Mostel or or Herschel Bernardi or somebody else do that." But, you know, there are interpretations of those shows that have not even been scratched the surface yet. And some people who who may never have seen those performances have their own idea of what it should be. And it's fascinating to watch that. I think we have some wonderful uh, local theaters here, not the least of which, as I mentioned, here right in Greeley, right over here on 9th, is, is the Union Colony Dinner Theater. And I have Raj and Kathy on regularly. In fact, t- uh, tomorrow morning I will have... Um, the uh, the director of the next show that's coming up, uh, it's the Patsy Klein. Always Patsy Klein. Yeah, always Patsy Klein, and uh, his name is Joel, Joel Chavez, and he has a middle name. I think it's Adams, but he wants to use all three. And then uh, Kathy's daughter is going to be there too, um, uh, Tori at Richardson, and she's there, and she does the lights and sound and things for him over there. But, you know, this is a situation, and I think that, that these smaller theaters, particularly these kind of things, give an opportunity to young people, as we might have liked to have had when we yeah, were younger. Right. Now, I did, I did do some melodrama stuff like that, and I suppose you probably did some dinner theater, too, yourself, didn't I you, David? Well, I'm not much of an actor, dan- uh, a singer-dancer. Uh, well, can, neither am I. I can carry a folk tune, but I cannot carry musical theater. You know... Do not dance. Yeah. I would love to see you act, though, because you you know you have a presence about you which I am really impressed with. Almost oh, from, the, from the first time we met over at the Stampede, I said, you know, this fella has something, and I really wanted to get to be. And, well, penicillin cured that. So yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Let's <laughs> let's laugh it all up. But here, you have so. Many, I think you're a lot deeper than you believe you are. Oh, I'm tremendously deep. At any rate, we so do have deep. a group of people who uh, who kind of travel around to these theaters, and they're very good. And some of them one day are going to be names that we'll have to be reckoned with. I think of Scott Wright, who is one of my favorite people. Uh, he's been out at uh, Candlelight for some time, but he'll be doing uh, Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat over here at Union Colony for the Christmas presentation. Um, I think of uh, Sharon Sheets, who does shows everywhere, and she's been at Carousel, she's been at uh, 
at Candlelight. She's done shows over here for Raj and Kathy at Union Colony. We really are fortunate to have those three here. And as opposed to looking at them as uh, as competition, which I think they do look at each other as competition, I look at them as each having a different place in my experience of theater, and I look forward to every opportunity I get to go. Now, take that one step further, mm-hmm. and this is something I'm going to invite you to go to with me in the near future, because I have season tickets there too, is the Windsor Community Playhouse. Sweet. I have been involved with them for nigh on to 12 years. I uh, am no longer really doing acting, directing, those kind of things. I was a narrator for their vaudeville, but we've done some wonderful plays over there, things that people don't recognize that would be available through a community theater. And uh, where I was taking this is this all goes back to their individual appreciations of Broadway theater, legitimate theater, traveling companies, and so on, because they see South Pacific, and they say, gee, I'd love to play that part, and the community theater gives them an opportunity to do it. If they're successful in community theater, many of them, as we've noted with the the three dinner theaters here in, in our localities, gives them the opportunity to take that a step further. Someday there's going to be, a, I won't say a Lawrence Olivier, but perhaps a Charlton Heston come out of one of those, not necessarily from the, uh, the standpoint of film, but the theater, I think, is making its umpteenth millionth revival because legitimate theater is really becoming more popular again, I think. There's a lot of different elements in, in what you just said. I mean, I think it is great that if you have people coming out of UNC and, and our, our very fine theater and yes. music program, and you've got people coming out of UC Boulder and, and places like that, it, they don't just have to, okay, they graduate, and now what? Yeah. They just moved to New York. And yeah. you know, there was actually an article in Backstage about two weeks ago was saying that essentially, yeah, if you want to, <laughs> there isn't that much to do in Colorado, especially if you want to do film or uh-huh. if you want to be on TV commercials, you kind of have to get out. Yeah. But for those who want to stick around and stay for a bit, you know, there, you know, it's it's not just oh, okay, UNC, and then you try and audition for something at the Denver Center. Is there anything in between? And thank goodness, at least Gridley has a couple of things, and then if you move towards. Loveland and Fort Collins, and there are theaters there. Mm. You, you're talking about some of the more commercial theaters. There are, of course, theaters that do not just musicals or dinner theater, yeah. but you know, a little bit more of like off-Broadway plays and things like that, and thank you God know, for them. And there's another venue, too, that i just recently been exposed to. It's called The Dinner Detective, and it's a fellow named Steve Wilder down in Denver. Mm-hmm. And it's a, uh, he bought the franchise for all of Colorado. He's been on the show with me a couple of times on Senior Circle. We went to one of their performances over at the Hilton, and it's uh, it's the murder mystery dinner, the, the yeah, typical my thing. Wife loved them, loves them. Well, yeah. by golly, the next time we get a chance to go, I'm going to take you guys along because uh, let me tell you how, what Steve has done with us. And I don't know if it came with him from Los Angeles, but he has a, a tremendously talented group of ed, in, improvisational actors that that are in his troupe. They embed the actors into the audience. So you don't know if that person sitting next to you is really one of the actors or really one of the uh, uh, patrons to the show. Now, this is fascinating to me. And, and you know, I, I absolutely I, I adore Steve because he's he's been so uh, generous with his time to come do my radio show. But from the first time we got on the show together, and he was telling me about this this hook that they have of putting the actors in the audience, I'm thinking, I've got to see this. Because uh-huh. most dinner theater, you have the characters. Right. And we've done a ton of these things. I, I, I think you and I have talked about this before. Those are fun. That's really great because the actors then pull the audience into it. 
picture this for a moment. You walk in there, and the actors are really sitting with you. They're in the socializing portion of the beginning. You get to know them, and you think, oh, this is, this is Bob so-and-so, and he sells parts for uh, Napa, except he's not. He's really an actor. <laughs> and they give you uh, fictitious names, or you choose a fictitious name at the beginning of the show. So everyone then oh, is – the is playing incredible. field is at a level – and you don't know. But what it does is it brings out the best in the audience because they start to participate more than they might if this were just a, a group of iconic characters that were in the thing. And he's doing these in Boulder. He's doing them in Denver. He's doing them in uh, in uh, Fort Collins. And it's really great. It's thedinnerdetective.com if you want to see it out on the Internet. The, the sure. dinner Thedinnerdetective.com. Uh, they've got a wonderful one coming up. I'm sorry to say they're all sold out down in Denver, but they have one coming up, I think, on Halloween, and there will be a group of them at the Hilton th- uh, over in Fort Collins. Betty and I would love to go that, but here's the switch on that one. Everyone shows up in costume. Now, think of that. Are you actually going to do that? Do you have a costume picked out? Well, uh, yeah, actually. I, I, and, I would yeah. like to do, you know, the Orson Welles Classic Chimes at Midnight Fall staff. I was good to do that. But I think they may be sold out. I was, uh, I'd was i have to check on that again. Betty and I were talking about going to do that. But, I, then of course, I'm working that night. Halloween is on Sunday this year. Oh, yeah. you're doing your thing, so, yeah. Yeah, but that's great. Anyhow, we're getting away from this. What I was yeah. going to go to, though, is that, you know, musical comedy is the only uh, specifically American form of theater. It originated in this country, not somewhere else, because it's been copied elsewhere. And we have such a rich heritage of those things. Having been born and grew up in New York and being able to see those, as you mentioned, with Fiddler, how many others have you been able to see a a one-in-a-lifetime opportunity to see the great names in theater? Well, I I missed, you know, if I had been born 20 years earlier. Well, yeah, you could have seen Barrymore. You could have seen uh, Burton and some of those. Not not just Barrymore. I mean, the great years of the American musical theater were late 40s into 50s. So I missed some of the, the... the major shows, and I didn't start going to theater as a grown-up, because I only went very, you know, it's not like my parents took me to the theater every week. Um, You know, I went to a couple of shows when I was a kid, but then it wasn't until college in the early 80s that I started to say, okay, you know, I'm I'm into this, I want to be a film director, I want to be a writer, I want to be this and that, so, you know, Wednesday afternoons, when they had the cheapest tickets, I would zoom down to the TKTS line after my physics class, ugh, (laughs) And, and and see whatever I could. But by then, I mean, that was actually considered a, sort of a waning period in Broadway. I had really missed yeah. most of the Golden Age. And I think you're right. It, it was it was almost a, a, a waiting, waning, as you said, period. But I, I got to see later, not in the original incarnations, but Carol Channing do Hello, Dolly. That was kind of <sighs> nice. She can, and it wasn't that long ago. I'm so jealous. Ago, yeah. You know. And... That what you understood what she brought to that part yeah. because she wasn't a kid anymore. She was an old. It was obviously tailored for her to do it one more time. And there is a possibility in like two or three weeks. I don't want to jinx it, but I, I'm probably going to be interviewing Carol Channing on this show oh, in October. Oh, really? Yeah, re- seriously, really, really, really. Do you tape these? I'm trying to. <laughs> I'm hoping that the, the MP3 is working. But yes, yes, I am going to. Totally taken. Oh, David. You know, after you've done that interview. In fact, you know, I'd love to see you come over and do my senior circle once a month, and we could just talk a little bit. We can we can afford one segment of 11 minutes to talk about what you're doing over here, but golly, you have got such a rich background in theater. I think that 
Does UNC know how lucky they are to have you? Um, no, I wish they <laughs> kind of wish they. Well, well, In other words, you're not overpaid, right? To the other topic, yeah. yeah. Well, but well, other people, you know, so like a friend of mine, former old friend of mine, uh, he saw, or maybe his parents saw Yul Brynner like Keen two nights it. before oh. he passed, but they got to see him, you know? That I missed. He died on the same day as Orson Welles did. Did you know that? Nope, that yeah. I did not know. Yeah. So. You know, he was terrific, Yul Brynner, because, you know, he sold the world a bill of goods. He was nothing like what his yeah. legend was. I mean, he was born in New York City. but he, Oh, my God, I always thought he was Turkish or something. No, yeah, yeah. his mother was a hooker, and he, he, he evolved this character. Go back and watch a 1946 film called Ports of New York, and he has the villain lead in that. And you will never, ever, ever recognize him. But... Um, what was uh, the the lady that played uh, Anna in the King? And she uh, the the part was essentially written for her. I oh. want to see uh, Gertrude Lawrence. Lawrence. Yeah, okay. And she literally took him off the streets after he had miserably failed in, in what he thought was going to be a movie career, um, and his physical being was in such terrible. I mean, he he had rickets, something terrible. If you take a look at the film, you can even see, you know, his his legs were terribly misformed. But she put him on a regiment of exercise and food and got him going, and she sold him to Rogers and Hammerstein as the as the only person she would play the part with. There's great stories out there, and none of them are from his son, which she, that's that's a horrible. You talk about Mommy Dearest. This was almost as bad a book as Mommy Dearest. But he was a pretty admirable character. He sold the world a whole bill of goods. You know, he was the uh, son of a what was a, a Japanese acrobat and Russian arist- dethroned aristocracy, no, and people a, believed it. I would. I still I don't know until right now. I think. Well, I mean, I haven't read his or, or, or you know any books about. Well, there's him, been so. a lot of books out there, but one of my favorite stories about him, if you don't mind me saying, those yeah. when he was doing um, Magnificent Seven, and you remember the young Steve McQueen came in there with. Uh, you know, he was the next big star going to be coming to films and stuff like that. It's, and Steve McQueen, according to, and this was an interview that was done with Yul Brynner, he said he was a, st- a scene stealer. And if he was off, you know, slightly off camera or something, he was always grabbing at flies or taking his hat off or something to take attention away from the lead players. Well, if you remember the beginning of that piece where they have, and he's talking to the to the drummer, and they're going to drive the, uh, the hearse up to Boot Hill, he and Steve McQueen. Yeah. And Steve McQueen's fooling around and you know while Yul Brynner's supposed to have a line there right yeah so Yul Brynner says cut you know and uh, you know the director says what's this about he says I just need a moment he took Steve McQueen aside and he said now this is going to stop right here because all I've got to do is take off my hat and you're out of the seat Good for, good for him. I thought he was, was going to punch him or something. No. That's oh, wonderful. No. That's great. You know, he was married uh, on the set of Magnificent Sevens. That little festival that they had okay. was actually the, the, the party for their wedding. This is, I think, his third wife. Let me I kind of do a little bit of business here. I know. I don't mean to bore you here. I could do that, though, if you gave me half a chance. Oh, sure. Well, I'll give you a whole chance to, to do that. But let, let's not bore people with the wonderful folks who sponsor this radio station. We are a uh, not-for-profit station. We are You'll part- have a sponsor? Well... Congratulations! Oh, thanks for reminding me. I actually have my own sponsors. Those are hard to get. Uh, t- well, no, you you got yours. You, people can't even advertise on your shows because you're all booked. Yeah, well, I'm glad. To, I'm happy to say I am, but, you know, I'm a niche a niche show. Yeah. And, you know, there's, there's so many... <laughs> 
old people out there. We're getting older all the time. So. Well, but any, thank you for saying that, Dave. I want to know who your sponsors are, David. Well, let's see. My personal sponsors were Dave's Gone By, and they've been with me pretty much since the beginning when I was doing this show in 2002 back on New York Radio. They include Hewlett Minuteman Press, the copy kings of Broadway, owned by the Torong family since the mid-1970s. Everything you need done at a copy place. There's copying, there's printing, they can put your name or your logo on a mug, on a pencil, on a binder. Hewlett Minuteman Press. Call them at 516-569-5577. 516-569-5577 and tell them Dave sent you to get 10% off any job Big or small at Minuteman in Hewlett. Yes, I'm still. I'm still. Actually, this is how loyal my sponsors are. I'm That's in wonderful. Colorado. That's wonderful. And they're New York. Yeah, yeah. They're in Long Island. What? They have a website. Yes, they do. Minuteman Press at att.net. I'm pretty sure that's correct. If not, and you say they will put my logo. They will put my logos on cups. Well, you have to pay them. Well, yeah, I, I expected to. But they have reasonable prices, good turnaround time, and they do very good work. They're good people. So, yeah, they can put, let's say you wanted to do something for Golden Years Theater or, or uh, your name or you're licensing something. You know, they'll put it on a mic. They'll put it on. To write that down, yeah. Minuteman Press. Yeah. And what was Check the telephone out. number again, David? 516-569-5577. And tell them Dave sent you for 10% off program is also brought to you by Fancy Schmancy Balloons. My friend Jeff, who was co-host of Dave's Gone By for about a year or so back in New York, he has run Fancy Schmancy Balloons for about two decades now, and it's not just making balloons or these helium things. He will design your party to make it look amazing. It's about centerpieces and about balloon archways. And he can also, if you don't know the first thing about setting up a party... He'll find the DJ. He'll find the, the florist for you. He'll find the caterer. So check out Jeff. His number is 516-797-3229. Area code 516-797-3229. Shouldn't your party be a fancy schmancy event? And this program is brought to you by Performing Arts Insider Theater Journal, the Bible of Broadway since 1944. Anything that you need to know about what's happening on the stages of New York, Broadway, off-Broadway, off-off-Broadway, even cabaret and opera, check out Performing Arts Insider. Go to performingartsinsider.com for more information about that. Okay, now I've done my sponsors. I shouldn't, I shouldn't have grouped these all together, but bear with me. We want to thank at UNC Radio, Reds, Dogs, and Donuts, which is welcoming back UNC students for the fall season. Visit Reds for hand-forged, delicious spud nuts. You know, they're a sponsor over on KFKA, too. Are they really? I did a spot for them. They were talking about spud nuts, and they asked me, what's a spud nut? What is a spud nut? It's a, it's a potato-based donut. Yeah. Oh, oh. And they go back to, I think those were probably pre-World War II. I would guess if not pre, it was certainly in the time frame. But, you know, uh, goods were hard to get in that time, and somebody developed a a, a donut that uh, was based on potatoes. See, they, they, they've written this kind of punctuation here is wrong, because right after spud nuts, they say, a potato donut, as if that is something else. But apparently a spud nut is, is a potato, a potato yes, donut. but they used to call potatoes spuds. I still do sometimes. They also have foot-long hot dogs. I don't know if those are hand-forged. Buffalo dogs. <laughs> and Kobe beef dogs, okay. 
And uh, beverage-wise, they have chai smoothies, delicious caramel apples. That is not a beverage. You'd probably choke to death if you tried to drink that. Much more. Uh, they also have happy hour Monday through Thursday at 7 to 8 p.m. If you buy three spud nuts, <laughs> you get three more free. I don't know why I find that so amusing. And let's see, is the poker... Tra- oh, yesterday was the poker tournament, so I don't have to read that. Do you ever eat there? I've, I've never tried. Is it good? Let's go there this afternoon. I'll buy Okay, well, After we're done here? The, the one thing that I was curious about, um, and by the way, we're here, it's 11.58 in the morning. We're almost coming up on noon here at UNC Radio in northern Colorado. I, I, the one thing I was worried about getting you here on the air this morning is, don't you have to be in your tent or something at the Oktoberfest? Well, that's up to whenever I get there. It's fine, but, you know, I don't have a specific set time. I'll just go by there on my way back. I'm not a big star over there. You know, we do have the Luke Schiltz and the Amy Olivers and the George Grays and, yeah, the, I know, I know. and those people who, who are far more important than I am, and I'm sure I can, I can get over there any time I want to. <laughs> but I would like to, I'd like to, to go over there. I was hoping you'd have lunch with me after we get done here because I'd love to talk with you a little bit more. Well, I would love, actually, I'm meeting the, the, the famous Joyce down over by the uh, the Oktoberfest. Okay, so well, we'll do it. Come time. with us, and we'll we'll grab some brats and brews. Love to, yeah, wonderful, love to. wonderful. That, I can't think great. of anybody I'd rather spend time with. But honestly, I, I have to tell you, those are really good dogs. And if you, I'm not what you would call a connoisseur. Now you you probably haven't gone to Yankee Stadium and some of those. We 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 just had you know candlesticks out there in California. <laughs> but uh, th- these hot dogs are uh, reminiscent to some extent of uh, the ballpark hot dogs, but they're better. And they really are unique. There's a lot of uh, a lot of choice there. Is there actual meat in them? <laughs> oh, I'm saying, well, that's what they tell you. You know, I, I've spent a lot of time in the in the Far East, and the Middle East, and one of the things I was told early on is chew three times and swallow it, and don't ask what it is. Oh, well, I, I would remember this. That's one thing you don't have to worry about that with right. days with Red's uh, dogs and donuts. I never worried about what was in those because I know that they're that they're the best that you can get. And like I say, I did cut a commercial for them over at KFK. I was pleased to have been asked to do so. Oh, very nice. Yeah. yeah. We'll go over there one of these times. I'll tell you what, we you get you get the lovely and talented Joyce, Joyce and we'll go over there and do that. That sounds, yeah. sounds good to me. It's, it's a good place. It's one, of those places, you, one thing that I guess the listeners... And you need to be you. able to try one of those spud nuts, you know, David. They're really, really good. I will miss it. I will miss a, a, a potato donut. I mean, come on. They're good. Yeah. But, no, the thing is, Joyce and I, one thing we haven't had, even living a year in Colorado, we still haven't bought a car. So we are kind of centrally located around UNC and around this area. Haven't, unfortunately, been able to get to places like theaters in Denver as much as I'd like to, or in Fort Collins. So that's why when you say, well, you've been to all the theaters around here, haven't it, as much as I should, and as much as I encourage all the listeners to, to go out and support our community theaters, our local theaters in Greeley and, you know, in northern Colorado in general, because, you know... To keep it going, they need your patronage. They need your money. Yeah. They do. I have. Yeah. Let me let me tell us a real quick story here, David. Yeah. Last week when we were there at um, the Union College Dinner Theater to see Bye Bye Birdie, you remember there was a young man I introduced you to after the show that his name was Michael Macbeth, and he started doing. Wait, the, his last name is Macbeth. Yes. Wow. Is that Boy, great? Yeah. yeah, yeah okay. Obviously. But Michael is is one of those ones that you never forget because we did his the first show. He was saying that I think he was thirteen or fourteen the first time he did 
Encore Encore, which is a Christian-based theatrical group over in, in Fort Collins. Mm-hmm. It was actually started by seven women, and it continues to this day. Uh, a couple of the originals are still involved in it, but it's uh, they do shows now once a year. They've been doing them at the Rialto the last couple of years, and I think they're going to do one at the Drake Center. The, uh, is this from Denver? I, I don't no, 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 it's in Fort Collins. Fort Collins. Oh, sorry, yeah. But uh, Michael was one of the youngsters that started doing that with us back when we were performing at the Lincoln Center. We used to get the... I think it's called the New Horizons Room or something there. And we did several shows. In fact, uh, Phil Walker, the great Phil Walker from uh, KCOL, he and I did My Fair Lady, a segment of My Fair Lady together. I was Pickering and he was... Uh, he Liza? Was, uh, no. Just, yeah, he was cute little Liza. No, Phil Walker. You know, uh, Phil was quite instrumental. He and Bill Benton were instrumental in getting me back into radio after I'd been gone for well over 30 years. I'm talking to Gil Moon. He is a radio broadcaster on KFKAAM 1310, which you can listen to if you're in Colorado on the regular radio at 1310 on your AM dial or on the internet at 1310kfka.com. And you can listen to Gil's two programs on the station. Sunday morning at 10, he hosts Senior Circle. And then Sunday, uh, Sunday evenings from 6 to 10, Mountain Time, you can hear Golden Years Theater with tons of uh, wonderful old-time radio. But again, you, Gil, you're saying about... Well, I was just going to say that Phil Walker, we were talking about, about theater and the evolution of it. Actually, Dave, if you go back to it, wouldn't it have been nice when we were kids to be able to uh, to have if 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 it had been you know so approved of, at least in my case, that we could have gone say from high school to college, done some college things here, then go on to maybe a dinner theater or uh, out in California. There's you know the melodramas; those are still pretty big. There's one in San Luis Obispo. There's one in. Uh, um, Paso Robles and some other places there, but they're kind of uh, novelty deals. They're not really as much as what we have here, let's say, with those things. Would have been great to have. But I tell you, I was I was tickled, and you recall from last Saturday night how tickled I was to see to see Michael mm. doing a production there. There's another fellow, uh, Seth Joukowsky, who's done a lot of stuff locally here that was one of our, our Encore Encore players that moved on. And he's been at Union Colony for some time, and then he's done shows over at, uh, at uh, Carousel as well over there for Kurt. But it's, it's theater, and, and we're very fortunate, I think, to have that, that variety of theater here in Fort in, uh, northern Colorado, not yeah. just Fort Collins and Greeley and Loveland and so on. You know, I don't know if you've ever been to the Rialto yet over there in Loveland, but that's an old uh, movie theater that they've converted. We did, um, and, and I have a small production company called Stellar Multimedia, okay. and we have been producing for about nine years uh, shows called Radio Readers Theater. Mm-hmm. Two years ago, we did four radio programs over there and we had the likes of uh, oh Don Krauss was in it and and uh, George Flynn and a number of well-known actors and and celebrities here from the area a lot of them are radio personalities and we reenact these old radio programs we actually started doing these at the Windsor Community Playhouse and we did uh, War of the Worlds we did uh, it's a wonderful life we did uh, African sound Queen. effects person with you that, that the- we make it we I do the sound effects and then I have somebody who runs them you know live when we're doing them but they're done on CDs and I try oh, to so get them from them in. Right, okay. mm-hmm, and he does the cues for them it's his name's Duffy Lodick. And he's been with me from the beginning. But I, I, where I was going with this is that you mentioned about uh, about uh, the radio, the old-time radio and the theater and stuff with it. When we originally started doing these, it was kind of a chancy thing because we weren't sure people were going to be willing to stand there and watch us read these things. You know, War of the Worlds was sold out almost every performance we did. And It's a Wonderful Life when we did it for Christmas. We packed them in there. We had to run two more performances. And several nights we had to put extra chairs over there at Windsor Community Playhouse. 
the point is is that people recognized what you called the magic earlier on about uh, having to be um, uh, participants as opposed to observers. We gave them a little bit of the best of both. And this is, I think, fascinating that when we did the show two years ago over there with Don, and, and Don Krauss helped me because he directed the Shadow episode for us. And he was, Don Krauss is a marvelous director. He does a lot of work for Bob Blue Theater over there at Fort Collins. We did uh, four shows. We did One Men's Family. And we did, well, you wouldn't recognize it, but it was another Carlton E. Morris, and it was uh, the longest-running soap opera on radio. And it it was marvelous because you followed the Barber family who lived in Pacific Heights, San Francisco. And then we did um, George and Gracie with, uh, what was his name, Sam Spade, Howard Duff as the the guest, but he played the Sam Spade character. And then we did the Shadow episode, and then we finished off with the very first Superman episode. We sold 429 seats out of 450. There is an interesting, uh, if you want to look at the other side of it, it's like the people who would go see Rocky Horror, the movie. Exactly. And then it wasn't just about seeing a film, it was about seeing... Experience. Yeah. I, I totally understand that. And there is a theater, if you go back to New York, um, there's an off-off-Broadway theater that is doing radio theater. Is that they're, right? Like uh, for Halloween, they're doing some Edgar Allan Poe stories adapted in, in reader's theater kind of thing. Uh, they're doing Radio Macbeth. I hope wow. how many times have we said that name? We've said it twice. Or yeah. We haven't jinxed it uh, yet. I forget what the, I think it's called Radio Theater New York is their website. So wow. if you're next time you happen to go back to my old stomping grounds, you might want to be checking. Listen, David, out. that's one of my plans. You know, is to uh, twice a year go back and I'd like to spend a week and see as much. Theater. What do you What do you consider the best Broadway th- show you ever saw? Oh my God. See, that's like asking me what's my favorite movie, right? Yeah, and, and you know, it's the kind of that you wish you had preparation on because some people might be able to answer it, oh, yes, that right there. And then other times, well, this was good for this and that was good. See, so that's, how, that's where I would be. Yeah. This was good for cinematography. This was good for costumes. This was good for acting, and that's how I would be. It's hard to find one, but I, but, well, you I, know, I can think of incredibly memorable moments in the theater that just blew my mind. I mean, tell that, me, that tell me about give you a few. Tell uh, me about First of all, seeing a show called Full Moon. This is about That's appropriate. Uh, yeah, thank you, thank you so much. Uh, well, let me tell you who was in this. It was a mime show put on by Bill Irwin. Now, you'll know who yeah. he is. He's an yeah. actor and a very fine mime came up from San Francisco. Certainly, yes. Yeah. Yeah, he's a very famous name in San Francisco. Oh, he, well, he should be, yeah. yeah. And, and, he was, and he did a lot of different mime things in New York, and he got, I think, a, a full, you know, this incredible genius grant and worked on stuff. But this, he teamed with a fellow named David Shiner, who came out of Cirque du Soleil. Du, Cirque du Soleil. Uh-huh. And they teamed up on a mime show together, where they each did different bits and different scenes, and Shiner did some of his Cirque du Soleil stuff, and Irwin incorporated the things that he was doing from largely New York and you know, in praise of flight and his early stuff. And it was one of the funniest two and a half hours I have ever spent. And, and it, it was funny and it was beautiful to watch. It was, ah, if you ever get to see Full Moon, do so. Now, is, it, is that a touring company too? Or? Well, I mean, it, we're, we're going about 15 years. And it wouldn't have mm-hmm. touring. It would have had to have been then, you know, doing it. But you can see bits and pieces. Like if you, there are things that Bill Irwin has done that have been videoed. Or first time I saw David Shiner do the routine that is now quite famous of um, the photographer in the photography studio. Have you ever seen this? this I don't believe I have, no. It was done, uh, I probably saw it on HBO when they taped a, a Cirque du Soleil 
thing because he was part of Cirque du Soleil at that yeah, point. I hate it. Yeah, and he was the clown, and he came out, but he wasn't in clown makeup or anything like that. He was just in like a hat and kind of an old time suit, and he played a photographer with a fake big old fake camera, and he got four people out of the audience to play people who were going to be in this silent movie. And he, you know, he sets up this little set of what they had to do. It was a western, and there's the girl, and then there's the villain, and then there's the guy. One of the f- absolute fall-down funniest things you have ever seen in your life. And they incorporated that into Full Moon as well. So I got to see it, like, I mean, just screamingly funny. So that is an unusual thing to pick for, like, a favorite Broadway moment, because it's not a big musical. And well, it's, it's fairly obscure, but, you know, nonetheless, it do- that doesn't detract from the quality of it. You know, you mentioned mime. San Francisco is, you know, is, is a is a world center for some of the finest mimes ever were. Most people remember Shields and Yarnell oh, God, yeah. from back in the 70s. They had their own television show for some yeah. time. But you know there's a fellow by the name of Robin Williams that used to do mime in San Francisco at, uh, at uh, Union Square. And when I was working there for <clears throat> one of the large drug companies in downtown San Francisco, it was not unusual for us to go over there and you know and, and get it's usually bagels, but there were hot dogs and things like that too around. Not as a lot, good as red dogs. Hot not dogs. even close. <laughs> yeah. But as you, you know, you sit around uh, on the park benches and stuff like that. And, and the lunch hour in San Francisco, most people think that it probably runs extended, but most often it's very very close to noon to one. But if you're loose enough that you can take your lunch a little early or a little later, you can see some some unique situations over there. And I do remember, and this was one of those things that really stuck in my mind for the longest time because I had no idea who Robin Williams was at the time. But Shields and Yarnell, we saw them all the time. And this was before their TV show. This would have been like 68, 69. And they were performing there at Union Square, and they were doing some wonderful stuff. And this fellow just kind of came out of the, the, the crowd and started performing with them. And I didn't know this until he was on the actor's studio, but uh, Robin Williams told the stories about having performed with them, and he would do, he would just be somebody out of the crowd that they would put in as a co- sort of a ringer. Mm-hmm. And so that was fairly early in his uh, in his career. But San Francisco, there are mime theaters in San Francisco, and I'm thinking most especially if you go down around uh, North Beach. Now, North Beach is now known uh, essentially you know, for some of the – the, le- the sleazier of entertainment. But there are some theaters still down there, and you can still go see those things. In fact, we went to one to see uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest when Michael Douglas was performing it, and it was his first run down there. We'd gone to Ernie's one night for dinner and then gone to see that. Yeah. And it was, there is, a theater is alive and well. ACT is still in San Francisco. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's tremendous. It, you know, just to put in a pitch for mimes, because people, you know, mime, and it's the guy it, with the, the spray paint in the park. Uh, and it's, uh, no. it's, it's so much more. That's an ancient art. It goes well back into the Greek years. And yeah. if people want to see where mime is now, if they get a chance to, or you get a chance to, check out a guy named Billy the Mime. You ever heard of this guy? No, I can't say I have. He, his real name, I think, is Stephen Banks, and he's done a lot of comedy work, and he's He's basically the head writer for SpongeBob SquarePants, but his other thing is... Oh, man, I want to whack... How come we didn't think of that? SpongeBob SquarePants? Give me a break. You know, the first time I said that, my kids were like... Well, my grandkids, I mean, are four, five, six, something like that. I said, that's going to be a big thing because it's so simple. It's kind of, you know, like the pet rock thing, you know? I'm well, sorry, you mean... It's very funny, and he's brilliant. And, but his, his alter persona... And he hasn't done this on Broadway, but off-Broadway he has and, and around the country... Some of his little pieces are on the internet at his website. You go to billythemime, I think, dot net, and you see that he's taken mime into a very different. 
direction. Sometimes a very controversial one, but it, it's it's wonderful stuff, and it's great to watch. Do you know the old Harlequin? The the character? Or you, no, the, the well, the, the the mimes that 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 uh, use that as their basis. I'm trying to think. There were some really famous ones back in the late '50s, and they they were uh, on television on uh, Ed Sullivan at least a couple of times. Hmm. But I always found that to, I think that was my eye opener was to see, and then you know learning where those you know goes back into France and so on where that was. But mime is one of those things like readers theater that people don't understand that it's more than just than a, a performing art. It's an ancient art because readers theater goes back to the Greeks too. Uh, there's a young uh, woman that I worked with over at at, um, at Windsor Community Playhouse named Christine Sturgis, who specialized and has a, a, a degree in in readers theater, and she has you know had time from time. We've talked about the history of it. That was one of the earliest forms of theater that was recognized as a performing sure. art. Yeah, because you would you would sort of appreciate this of another show that just blew my mind when I was on when I was going to see Broadway shows, and that was the first time I ever saw. On stage, Our Town. Oh, now, you must know Our Town. I love it. I mean, it's, it's just one of those. Play. They even did, like two, three weeks ago on, on CBS Sunday Morning, they did a piece about how important Our Town. It's more produced than really any other show because it's just incredibly moving and beautiful when it's done right. And I had seen it on TV with Robbie Benson years ago, and maybe with the William Holden version, but I'd not really been cognizant of the play. Do you remember who played the female lead in the William Holden version? Jane Wyman? No. Martha Scott, the woman that played uh, Charlton Heston's mother in Ten Commandments. Oh, good Lord. Yeah. Okay. Yes. And they weren't that many years apart. How long was the Our Town? Like 30s or was it already 40s? Uh, I'm thinking that was 43, 42. Oh, that's right, because it wasn't written until you know, real, real quickly, you know, Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward did that on television for the 50th anniversary of Ford Motor Company when it did it. And Frank Sinatra was the stage manager. Oh, my God. Love and Marriage. That was written for that production for that, for, which is a totally wrong song it was much more right for married with children than yes for our but you know that this tells you how they were trying to adapt ford motor company was celebrating their 50th anniversary of building motor cars and they had this this two-hour special and it was our town and again frank sinatra was the stage manager but paul newman and joanne woodward played the young lovers wow and of course you know that the last broadway production of Our Town, Paul Newman was a stage manager. Yes, I did. And they did tape that, and they showed I, that on, on public television. And it's wonderful. I, I did not get to see I went to the wrong theater that night and went to it instead because it, it was opening around that time when a lot of shows were opening in the spring, and I, I like had my wrong calendar, so I ran to another show that I was supposed to see two days later and missed the uh, the Paul Newman Our Town, and I was so upset, and they they couldn't get me. I happened to meet he and uh, and Joanne Woodward once on the street in San Francisco, coming down the hill there by the Fairmount Hotel. Yeah. And it, interestingly enough, I was leaving KSFO Radio, going over there, but I'd been working in San Francisco uh, for uh, the drug company. They were filming. Um, Towering Inferno, and they did all the filming at night. Yeah. So I, I did a lot of my work at night because during the day, uh, you know, computer time was hard to buy during the day. It was very expensive, so I was buying time at a place called Data Specs, and we were running a lot of our stuff at night because we were creating some systems. But we could watch them out, out the window, you know, from the, the 19th floor or whatever, and watch them doing it with the, with the fire wagons and all that stuff. But I came out of there, and I'm walking down the street, and what, what I noticed first off was that uh, John Woodward was walking on the outside, 
as opposed to walking on the inside. You know, when you're walking with a woman on the oh, street, yeah. you know. Uh, Never I mean, understood all that, but my wife is. Straight. Well, yeah, straight. I I was raised that way. And I noticed, and he had this long blue overcoat, looked very expensive, and sunglasses. And it wasn't a particularly sunny day. And when I got closer, I recognized her first. And, you know, she has a, a striking presence, not as, you would say, beautiful, but there's a presence about her. You know that she's somebody mm-hmm. important just by the way she carries herself and so on. And we got up a little closer. I, I just said, well, good morning, Miss Woodward. I hope you're enjoying San Francisco. You know, it's typical BS you do. Yeah. And he takes the sunglasses and he tips them down and looks at me over the top of the sunglasses. Well, obviously, well, he felt eyes, yeah, right. he felt slighted. I'm sure he felt slighted. I says, "I'm so sorry. It's very, it's a, an honor to have you here in San Francisco, too, <laughs> Mister Mr. Newman. I hope you're enjoying yourself." And he put the glasses back on. We didn't. They, she just nodded and went on, and he went on. But I think that was a very telling moment when he peeks over the top of the glasses, so I can see his blue eyes. I, 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 I can't imagine Paul Newman being kind of steamed that he would not be recognized when walking with you. I mean, well, let me tell on, you something. Sometimes that. That is an odd thing. Now, you know, you remember Sid Charisse, the beautiful dancer from the 40s, 50s, 60s, and so on? She was married to a fellow named Tony Martin, who incidentally was Alice Faye's first husband uh, before she married Phil Harris. We were, my wife and I and my son were coming back from a camping trip. We'd been up around Shasta, and we pulled in, and we wanted to have a, a Shakey's Pizza at the Concord Mall out there in San Francisco, in the Bay Area, Concord. It's, you know, it's east of San Francisco. Ways. We're getting ready to go back to the car, and they have this, it's a beautiful glass-roofed mall, and they have these trees planted all over and these potted things with little benches and things set under them. And the, the escalators are on one end of the, the uh, building, right? So I see this man who looks to be rather rotund with a striped golf shirt on, but it was striped horizontally, blue and white. To make him look even more Yeah, right. Yeah. Like you could, you know, I, you know you're thinking you're, this, this guy's pretty big. Actually, it wasn't when he got up next to him. But as we got closer to them, it was Tony Martin, and I recognized him, who happens to still be alive. And I think he's living in a nursing home in L.A., but at the time they were living up on Snake Road in Oakland area, Oakland Hills. We get... We get close enough to him, and I said, I'm kind of a gregarious person. I said, you know, Mr. Martin, it's a pleasure to see you. I put my hand out. Now, he nudges her, Sid Therese, who was his current wife then, and was his wife till he died. she died. Yeah. Look who got, it, uh, who got recognized first. It was a little joke between them, you know, when they would go out into public. And I don't know if they got recognized very often because we're talking, this was in the early 80s. But he nudges her and says, look who got recognized <laughs> first. And they sat down and talked with Betty and I, and my son was about 9 or 10 at the time. Now, he was being a pain in the neck running around because he wanted to get back in a car. But, but they were just so nice to us. And, they were, and my wife always says, you know, she had to be at least 72, 73 years old, and she was drop-dead gorgeous. Good. <coughs> no makeup, nothing. Excuse me. I haven't played any music in like two hours. Yeah, Dave, I'm sorry to be rude about interrupting your story. No, 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 no. But, um... All right, let, let me finish the Our Time story. Finish the Our Time story. Because normally at noon we play a half hour of Bob Dylan on this program because that's just what I do. So we, we kind of eschewed that, but I will play a little bit of Dylan. Are you a Bob Dylan fan? Fanatic. been a moonshiner for seventeen 
long years I spent all my money on whiskey and beer I go to Some hollow and said of my still and if whiskey don't kill me and I don't know what will. Bottle gets empty 
It sure ain't worth a damn To hear again a songbird's sweet melodious tone Won't you meet me Out in the moonlight along The dusky light the day is losing Orchids, poppies, black-eyed Susan The earth and sky that melts with flesh and bone Standing alone 
without a dream in my heart without a love of my own blue moon you knew just what I was there for you heard me say a prayer for Someone I really could care for Then suddenly there appeared before me The only one my arms could ever hold I heard someone whisper, please adore me And when I looked, my moon had turned to gold Brings me a cheer. 
pierced me to the heart She still lives inside of me We've never been apart If you get close to her Kiss her once for me Always have respected her For doing what she did and getting free Oh, whatever makes her happy I won't stand in the way For the bitter taste still lingers on From the night I tried to make her stay I see a lot of people as I make their rounds And I hear her name here and there as I go from town to town And I've never gotten used to it, I've just learned to turn it on Or else I'm getting stalled Sundown, yellow moon I replay the past I know every scene by heart They all went by so fast If she's passing by that hard to find Tell her she can look me up If she's got the Shut the light, 
shut the shade You don't have to be afraid
Yes, we're we're here. Looking at well, the song was "New Blue Moon," but we're looking at the uh, the relatively new Gill Moon here, <laughs> University of Color- Northern Colorado radio station UNC Radio, listenable on uncradio.com and also in the dorms at the university on Channel Three. And we've just been having an absolute blast having Gill from KFKA AM Radio here. In Greeley, Colorado. In his honor, we played some Bob Dylan songs there. We, we usually do our Dylan set at noon. Got started a little late on it. But we heard Moonshiner, Moonlight from Love and Theft, Blue Moon, If You See Her Say Hello. Well, that has a... I've, those were the only three songs with moon in the title, so then we had to go a little far afield and find some other stuff. So If You See Her Say Hello, in which uh, Dylan sings the line about sundown yellow moon... And then Traveling Wilburys, of which Dylan was a part, New Blue Moon. Although I think that's the ELO guy doing the lead vocals on that. Who is, who is the lead fellow from Electric Light Orchid? Lynn, Jeff Lynn. So, anywho, but he's somewhere in the background. You're asking me? <laughs> You're asking me? I am asking you. Well, no, you, you moved Dylan. I, wasn't, I was a little surprised about that. No offense. Well, that does sort of go back to the 60s, and that's, that was my yeah. era. So, anywho, I noticed you didn't play uh, play any Glenn Miller or, or Tommy Dorsey or any of that. Well, we we I had a lot more music I was going to play, but we got so into talking and and all about the stuff you know about radio and Orson Welles and about uh, Hollywood movies and pretty much everything else that you know. Oh, but you were telling us you were telling this really great story about our house or our ah, town, our house, our, our town. town. Yeah, Wilford Brimley classic, our house. You remember that? Are you old enough to no. remember that? No, I don't. It was a television show. Was... Okay. So, we, well, it was in response to your question of some of the best things I've ever seen on Broadway. And I told you that Our Town was mm-hmm. one of them. And I wanted to tell this story particularly because um, on some level you'd appreciate it. Now, the first time I saw Our Town, and it completely blew me away and moved me to tears and all that, was the stars were Spalding Gray, if you remember the late Spalding Gray. Yes. He played the stage manager. And he took a little flack because they said he did it in a rather cynical uh, way he was almost ironically commenting on the material, which I did not see at all. I thought he was marvelous. But that's not a bad idea. It's doable, but yeah. I saw it. I didn't see it. I just thought he was hmm. really good. And then, do you know who the two leads were? I can't wait. Well, I, I mean, they're famous. Not, Somebody I know? You have heard of them. Eric Stoltz, oh, yeah. the right-handed yeah. actor, and yeah. Penelope Ann Miller, if you remember her. Yes. They were fantastic. I mean, it was... Now, where did you see this? In New York? In New York? It was Lincoln Center. We're staging it on Broadway. Now, I loved it so much that I was working... um, I forget where I was at the time. I dragged a co-worker, because it was also kind of a theater guy. And I said, you've got to see this production. Well, it was a few weeks later, or months later, and new cast, new people. So now the... League actress, uh, the young woman playing Emily, was an actress named Helen Hunt, if you remember. Is this the Helen Hunt? The Helen Hunt. And the stage manager was played by Don Amici. Don Amici from Kenosha, Wisconsin. Right. Yes. It went from being the very best, one of the very best experiences I've ever had in the theater, to being one of the worst. And this is the, the reason. Don Amici would just come into the role, I guess, was an older gentleman at this point. Yeah. And either... He came too soon, or he didn't learn his lines, or whatever. But within about three, four minutes, it was apparent that he was lost, that he did not know the the script. 
And it, it's, and it's difficult because the stage manager doesn't interact with anybody. He's got to either know his line. Yeah, but he can't. No cues. Yeah, he, he's the conduit. Right. So, I mean, he was on, and literally it was at the point halfway through the show where he would just say, shout line. And you would hear the line coming off stage from, from stage manager reading it. And I just, you know, I was looking, I was angry. It must have been terribly was, embarrassing for him, too. And, uh, Had he won his Academy Award yet by the time he did that? Oh, yeah, this was after, I'm pretty sure this was after. So he'd, have been, his, he'd or, have been in his 80s then. Oh, yeah. I mean, he looked great, and he sounded great. Oh, yeah, he still looked good. But you knew immediately that, uh-oh, he's repeating a couple of things, and then he just completely got Now, in a case awful. like that, wouldn't it have been smart, wise, intelligent, whatever, to just simply hand him the script? because yes, he's a stage manager. Why not do anyway. that? Yes. Yeah. I don't know why they didn't think of that even for the second act. <clears throat> it would have been, you know, and he could have pulled it off. He could have gone through the whole thing with a script And no one hand. would have known the difference. Yeah. And people would have loved it because he had the voice, he had the presence. Instead, and, and I was rather amazed. I, I you know, because I was this close to booing at the end. I don't oh. boo very often. But the audience still gave him a decent hand, and I was like, oh, come, no, 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 do not reward this. But at the Lincoln Center, that must have been terribly embarrassing. Yeah. I mean, he went on. Yeah. I guess he had been, ended up learning his lines. And now, if you look at the stories coming out of New York, uh, there are a lot of actresses and, and older folks who are using. Earpieces. Oh, yeah. Signals. Yeah. Uh, Angela Lansbury was using it. There's actually a class that you could take <clears throat> for television, um, would-be commentators and news people, on how to do that. And our friend George Flynn is one of the teachers yeah. that, uh, that teaches that class. Oh, really? Yes. Because yeah. I know, can imagine it being distracting, but... We need to bring George Flynn over here and do this show with him. Yeah. Do you have an, yeah, you have three microphones here. Sure, yeah. You know... George is one of the most entertaining people you're ever going to meet in your whole life, and he knows story after story about radio, television, film. But with your knowledge of theater and George Flynn in the room with his knowledge, and your knowledge of radio, <coughs> George is uh, George used to work for Hanna Barbera, did the voices back when they had the Flintstones and the and the, the oh Jetsons God. and those things. Yeah, who, who, who did he? Who, who I I suspect it because of those were sort of. Uh, uh, the troops of repertory artists that he may have done several of them one time or another, and they may not have always been the same person doing the voice. Unlike unlike a Family Guy, where it's the same people all the time. But Hanna Barbera had a whole different idea about it because they would they would teach people several voices, right. and they wanted to do that so they wouldn't be in the same mess that uh, that uh, uh, what was his name Mel Blank oh, well, yeah. put put Warner Brothers into without Mel Blank there was no Daffy Duck there was no uh, Bugs, Bugs yeah, Bunny. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. yeah, you know Daffy Duck was was uh, essentially created to be the counterpart, the uh, the racial counterpart to Bugs Bunny. And if you look at how the two characters evolved, they're almost identical. Wait, wait, wait. Yes, he, Daffy uh, Duck was created in order to be a black person. Yes, to yes, a black Bugs, Bugs Bunny, Bunny? A, a black Bugs Bunny. Yeah. What was the thinking about it? Because they weren't. Well, because they were trying terms. to appeal to a new audience, and it, and it was one of those things that happened. Daffy Duck had appeared in two or three of those old Looney Tunes, and then they didn't, they didn't show him for a long time. And then he came back, and it was really probably the late fifties, early sixties when it started to do it. But they wanted to appeal; they wanted to have a, have that appeal. There. Mel Blanc has written a whole book on the evolution of those characters, Speedy Gonzales, which is now you know banned. They don't well, yeah. do that anymore. Yeah. But that was another one of those attempts that they did that they brought in there to try to attract a different audience. So. Oh, that's 
That's why it never occurred to me that that was. Uh, yeah, well, Mel Blank has a book out there, and I don't remember what the name of it is now. But you know, his son is now doing most of those voices. Sure. Well, like like um, <clears throat> Brian Henson mm-hmm. does the characters of the Muppets that, that Jim Henson used to do. Now you know there is a fella who is at a time probably was recognized by a certain segment of our population, but Sesame Street truly changed the world. Oh yeah. Oh my God, yeah. It was like the Beatles for the preteen set. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll tell you another fellow that, that gets very little recognition, but Mr. Rogers. My son grew up, and I really give an awful lot of credit to Mr. Rogers for teaching uh, certain aspects of social interaction that he learned from watching Mr. Rogers. Yeah. And I mean, you know, he takes off his shoes when he comes to the house or something like that. But no, but the whole idea was is that that was my, my son's generation. And he would sit there and talk back as they would. Wait, how old is your son? Because I was my was my son. He'll be forty. Generation. He'll be forty. Yeah. Okay. So I'm I'm of that cohort. Yeah. Because I watch. Sesame I think when we talk about that, aren't you just slightly younger than my son? I, I, no, I'm forty six. I'm older. Oh, okay. But but still, I remember the first episode. Yeah. I became a Sesame Street fanatic, and I remember watching Mr. Rogers. Well, the trolley. You know. Yeah. 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 Actually, neighborhood make believe was not my favorite part. I, I kind of like. I didn't want them to go to make believe. I just wanted to hang with Mister Rogers. Yeah, he was cool. Watch him feed the fish. Yeah. yeah. Well, you and Eddie Murphy. Hey, listen. You know, you were talking about film in this area, and you know there is a wonderful film company called Shadow Play Films that runs out of, of Loveland, mm-hmm. and I'd be happy to take you over there to issue a film named David Priest, who runs it. It's part of the Grizzly Adams Group now, and they they do a lot of films. You'll see them on. Uh, Oh, Hallmark TV and, and several, they make a lot of commercials. It's uh, spiritual in nature for a lot of the things that they do. Sure. And uh, I've done, oh, maybe 12, 15 films for them over the years that I've lived here. But I have to say that that's another opportunity that people pass up. You know, the independent film industry probably has a better a better audience now than it's had, oh, well, yeah. in years. Because people want to see, especially with YouTube and those things, uh, People want to see what other people's take is on things. And uh, one of the examples that I will bring out, too, is that, you know, if you put in Orson Welles into the video section on Bing or Google or any of those, there are tons of people out there who are imitating Orson Welles, doing pieces and bits and stuff that he had done. And a couple of them have even done shows with them. Uh, there's one down in Australia running right now, and there was one that ran in Chicago for a well, while, too. Well, aren't you working on some level on a on Orson Welles? Yeah, I'm doing it a little different, though. I'm taking, you know, towards the end of his life. And most of it was uh, inspired, I think, um, by my appreciation of that interview we talked about from 1984, because he could look in retrospect at the things that he had done well and not done so well. Barbara Leeming wrote a wonderful book that I'm listening to at the moment, uh, The Life of Orson Welles, a biography, and she did it through two years of interviews with him, and there's stories in there that I hadn't even heard yet, and I've read just about everything that's ever been written about Orson Welles. Uh, my interview with Chrissy, his uh, his oldest daughter, <clears throat> off the air, she gave me a tremendous amount of insight to personal aspects. You know, this was a really humble fella. Orson Welles. Yes, and you don't see that in anything that you see him do. He was always so self-confident that, to the extent that people thought he was arrogant, but he was really humble. And he, you know, there's this incident between he and uh, uh, John Houseman where he threw the flaming uh, dishes at Houseman uh, at uh, Chase's restaurant, and they supposedly split and, you know, never worked together again. Well, that's simply not true. The idea that he threw the dishes at him is true. And, but a week later, they were having lunch at, at Sardi's, and then, you know they, he worked with him and stayed with him through the end of Kane. The incident, though, that that, that uh, um, as it was depicted by uh, Houseman in his autobiography, was far more 
dire than it was when Wells talks about it. Wells had an explosive temper, and if you've right. seen me and Orson Wells, you know that that's the case. I mean, that whole speech that he makes about, I am Orson Wells and this is going to be done my way thing, that happened. That probably happened. Well, it has to. If he's going to be an auteur, if he's going to be the chief cook and butler. That is the word of all words, auteur. That is exactly sure. what he was. Sure. But he was so cocksure of himself. You know, it, it's like he said, uh, the word genius was whispered to me when I lay muting in my crib, and it didn't even occur to me till I was 40 that, it, that I may not be one. Well, he was so sure of himself, and people don't like that. You've experienced that. I know you have. I have. <laughs> well, no, it was, it was when a you, thing to think that you're smarter than you actually are. I think, I, I think but the other side of it is, what if you're not? What if you are smarter than you think you are? I would rather be that. I think. And I think you are. I, you know, David, you know, I've told you before, you and Joyce were a real bright spot coming into my life. Oh, and I just love you guys to death. But I have to say this, that uh, you have a tendency to be overly humble about your own experience and your own your well, own. That's business. just because I am so brilliant. Um, and I think you are. <laughs> I, I think you are. You know, I'm looking forward to working with you if, if if we ever do get the chance to sit down on my on my Orson Welles thing. But I I, yeah. I, I I consider it a real pleasure and honor to have been here with you this morning. Thank you for having me, Dave. Well, thank you, Gil Moon. And we don't really have time to, to run through the list of the things that you're going to be playing on oh, Sunday night. Sunday night. But tell, tell people the two shows that they can listen to tomorrow on KFK. Well, if you listen to Senior Circle from 10 to 11 tomorrow, we will have guests from Union Colony Dinner Theater as well as your own people here from, uh, what's the name of that? Uh, ideas? Bright Ideas, the two stars of Bright Ideas. So they'll be on in the 10.30 hour, and they have a whole half hour then. Sunday night from ten, 6 to 10, we have uh, Superstition, three out of match from 1935, followed by Mysterious Traveler at 6.30, Out of the Past from 1944. At 7 o'clock, Mr. Ace and Jane with Jane and Goodman Ace. Did you ever see a dream walking? And again, this is about horse racing from 1948. 7.30, the incomparable Charlie Chan, Telltale Hands from 45. 8 o'clock, the College of Musical Knowledge with Phil Harris from San Luis Obispo, California. 1944 and 8.30, John Daner, Have Gun, Will Travel, Hell Knows No Fury from 1960. At 9 o'clock, the Lux Radio Theater Whistle Stop with Alan Ladd and Evelyn Keyes from 1946. And once again, David Lefkowitz, thank you so much for having me here.